Tell me where is the blue bird of happiness found? Tell me why is the sky up above so blue? And when you were a child, did your mommy tell you? Welcome, everybody, uh, to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Jim Leskowski is not here. He's on sabbatical. He's in New York eating cheese, which is, I guess, what I assume everyone in Brooklyn is doing all the time is eating, uh, uh, like, a, you know, like artisan cheeses and, and, and sipping craft beers and stuff like that. I'm sure that's mostly what he was doing out there in New York. Um, but you won't miss him. Kurt Hapyard's here. Kurt Hapyard. Uh, popular guest. Uh, welcome back, Kurt. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I, I assume he should be watching the 25th anniversary of Do the Right Thing, which is like today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're in Brooklyn, right? I was. I I, I made a joke the other day, like to, like the uh, in honor of the 25th anniversary of Brooklyn. Everyone in Brooklyn now will uh, will uh, wax their mustaches into the shape of love and hate. Uh, it's the Brooklyn in, in do the right thing is not there anymore. Right. Like, but it, in a way, in a way it, it's kind of a, like there's a, you know, a gentrification that obviously has gone on over many, many years and it's a lot more hipster, but in a way in Spike Lee's movie, there's a hipster ism in that over stylization in that film. Do like, you, th- you, 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 you associate that with sort of hipsterism? Well, it, it I associate it with exceptionally over-stylized, which, and it's a conscious thing, right? Sure. It's it's very conscious. I, I guess for me, when, when I think about, like, hipsterism, I think that, I mean, my definition of a hipster is someone who makes you feel insecure about how cool you are. <laughs> and that's why no one can agree on what a hipster is, because it's all just about, whoa, what makes you feel insecure? But for me, like the thing that defines hipsterism is sort of like a, a Vice magazine sort of a thing where it's a detached nature to it, where it's it's just sort of a distanced, you know, like like Vice can do the greatest uh, news story ever on, you know, on uh you know, on prostitution in the Middle East or or whatever they choose to make a news story on, but there's always this weird detached thing where they won't, it feels like almost they want you to be as impressed that they did it as actually care about the story. That and that's um, fair. That's actually not a terrible definition. I look at it as a conscious effort to design yourself in such a way that you project some level of cool, as opposed to well. Um, someone who just is. Yeah, sure. Well, sure. I mean, and certainly that applies to that era of Spike Lee's career when he was still, you know, he was doing Nike commercials as his kid, Mars Blackman from uh, from She's Got to Have It. You know, he he was definitely a very self stylized celebrity. But to me, there's an energy, there's a uh, there's a level of emotional commitment and sincerity to do the right thing that uh, to me is the opposite of what I associate with hipster. And but fair I, enough, I, I certainly don't deny that. Like, I yeah. mean, that movie is very powerful and it has a very honest and intense things to say. I'm just saying that there is a side of Do the Right Thing which is very conscious in its construction. Sure. And also the funny thing about uh, – I mean, the funny thing about Spike Lee is for his sort of undeserved reputation of just sort of blanket hating white people – 
you know, there's a certain level of empathy for the guy in the Larry Bird shirt <laughs> who's who's like, look, I just I accidentally touched your shoe and you're making a huge fucking deal of it. <laughs> you know, like that's that's sort of the that's the gentrifier, that character in uh, that movie. But like there is a certain level of empathy for even for even the gentrifying white guy um, in putting and making him a character in that specific situation. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, obviously, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. And, uh, you know, whether or not it's the 25th anniversary or the 26th anniversary or 27th anniversary, it never, it's never a bad idea to go and revisit it and sort of just once again, be re-amazed, not just in the, you know, the script and the themes it tackles, but just the fucking style of it. Like, as you, as you point out, like, it's like, it's almost, it's sad that, uh, just because of the time it came out and sort of the culture it came out in, like no one talks about the movie is fucking weird. <laughs> like yep. it's one of the weirdest movies. Like if he was a white guy, like if he was a white guy and he was doing it about an ur- a white ur- urban area, like all of the conversation would be about like, oh my god, he's one of our newest, stylish, most interesting directors. You know, like he he the things he's doing with the camera is, is groundbreaking, and um and the things he's doing with narrative and the way he's breaking the fourth wall and then not breaking the fourth wall like in the same shot it just goes from radio rahim breaking the fourth wall to oh never mind uh <laughs> you know like i i feel like i almost feel like if spike lee wasn't black um he could have had a similar impact that tarantino like had like a similar kind of explosion um with his with with do the right thing. Just part, of, in... part of me really wonders what Wit Stillman's do the right thing would look like. <laughs> oh Jesus! Like, well, he's he the made it, right? it's, guy. it's metropolitan. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Like, if you want, like, that is Whit, you know, Whit Stillman's do the right thing is just a <laughs> metropolitan with uh, with a new title. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thing with that one because it it is totally of its time. And totally timeless at the same time, which oh, yeah. I think is as good a definition of a great movie as anything you can come up with. Yeah, I mean, you definitely, yeah, you can go from you know, pick up on South Street. You know, we're going to be talking about Samuel Fuller later. Like, pick up South Street has a modern pace. It has a modern sort of dark tone to it. It has a modern cynicism to it. it you know, but there's no mistaking it. Like. The, if that movie were to take place, you know, were to be remade, they'd have to change a lot of the script in order for it to take place in 2014. It you know, is like very much of the 1950s. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think that's valuable too. I think when people say a movie has aged, and I mean, I'm going to be talking about Fuller later, and so we, we'll probably end up having a conversation about what it means when a movie ages. Um, like when people say, "Oh, that hasn't aged well," or "That has that hasn't aged at all." Like I think all movies age because just because they are you know uh like inherently kind of a documentary and that there are real people from a real era in front of a camera and unless it all takes place in the studio there's real location you know but um it's interesting how things can age in a interesting way and things can age in a way that uh rubs you the wrong way as a viewer um and even how things can come back around like if you think about a like William Friedkin's Boys in the Band, you know, that movie was based on a play that, you know, that, that was, that was written before Stonewall. And the whole movie is about these gay men and their self-loathing. And then once you get to, and once you get to the movie version of it finally being released after Stonewall, 
gay audiences hate it because they're like, no, we're beyond that. We're not going to have another <laughs> movie about self-loathing. Yeah. And then now when you look back at it, you're like, oh, my God, that's a fascinating portrait. And it's daring. And it's has, you know, and these characters are so great. And sure, it's like a filmed play, but it's just beautiful. And, you know, like these are in and, and like if you look up, you know, I looked up the cast because this movie is amazing. And all the most of the cast have died of AIDS. So, like, these are real people you know, enacting real things that they probably felt in their lives. And, you know, it didn't fit sort of the, uh, it didn't fit the sort of message that the, <laughs> it didn't fit the gay agenda of the time. So it was sort of uh, not, you know, held up as a, uh, as a great work. And I think that that movie has aged really well. Um, I think uh, the same with cruising, actually, I think cruising, I not as, say, not as made, well, but he yeah. made that right. Yeah. And cruising was another similar thing where, if, you know, at the time, the only gay characters, a character being gay or character being a transvestite or a trans person or whatever, that was a sign of them being like untrustworthy and and deceitful and evil and like weird. And it was a method of pushing the audience away. So Cruising is a movie about a serial killer who's gay and fucking, you know, the uh, the protesters, they let him have it. They hated it. They they found out where he was shooting and they made so much noise at every location he was shooting at that he had to do most of the most of the sound in post like um like that's another movie where it's you know it where at the time just depictions of of gay persons in films were like that so it wasn't sort of able to be accepted and now that you have you know now that you have gay characters who are you know, in, in television and you have gay characters in movies and they're just family people and they're just people like you could probably make a movie like cruising and it wouldn't be as big of a deal and it wouldn't be as controversial. Well, and in fact, uh, not that this is, it just happened to have come out the same year. Um, but Zucker Abrams Zucker's airplane, uh, came out and the air traffic controller is like a gay caricature. Oh yeah. Kind of character. But the movie never um, openly mocks him. Like, he, he actually does whatever the fuck he wants. There's a really actually fascinating article over at The Dissolve on that particular character and how he doesn't, he did not, he was not punished in the same way that you are describing that gay characters are typically punished in movies. He just he, comes in, he says what he wants. No one ever really like, gives him shit or anything for it. He just is what he is. He's funny. Um, but are you laughing at him? Are you laughing with him? It's really hard to say. He's kind of, it's kind of a complex little character in a goofy, dumb, funny little movie, uh, where there isn't really any judgment on him, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, I, that was the movie of the week of the dissolve recently. I think, is it still the movie of the week? It was, I can't. Yep. Okay, but at any rate, uh, I, I I read the uh, sort of the roundtable thing they did, and they talked about that character and like being the one part of the movie that hasn't necessarily aged well. But the thing about that character is he is a flamboyant like gay stereotype. He is the same gay character who shows up in I don't know something like Vanishing Point, another sort of seventy. Uh, that was a seventies movie, but like same thing where it's just like wild and bad and sexless and just being a silly. Man, but the thing about that is they give him jokes, <laughs> you know, it is, uh, you know, and a, a lesser film. I'm, I'm not saying it's a progressive depiction of a gay character, but like in a lesser film, 
that would be the joke. No, no. Is every everything game, he says here. is something else. Exactly. Everything what? he says is some other joke. It's just the way he says it's just the second kind of it, layer. Yeah, it's coded as gay. But like when I was a kid, I didn't know that was like I just oh, thought he was just being enthusiastic. silly. He's enthusiastic. Yeah, I just when you're a kid, like all children's television uh, hosts and performers, they all act like they're gay, Mr. like Rogers. gay stereotypes, because they're all just like. <laughs> Full of way too much enthusiasm right. and way too much energy, and they're like, "Hey, yeah," and like, and they're just sort of outside of the context of the real world. So, as a kid growing up and watching Airplane, like he was like my favorite character, and it wasn't because I somehow like I don't think I sent you know even growing up to be uh, you know a, a queer person, I don't think I sensed that uh, part of him. I just thought he was the silly guy, and he made the loudest jokes and he was the funny and he called the pl- he said the plane looked like a big tile in the hall <laughs> which is the fucking funniest joke and it's, got it's wheels such a weird and... line <laughs> oh it looks like a big tile in all well he's kind of in a way everyone else in that movie is deadly serious and that's funny because the movie's ridiculous but he's the one guy that is just as ridiculous as the movie hey you know what i realized kurt we haven't uh, we haven't talked about what we watched this week. <laughs> I know, but it's hey, we're just here. There's no structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and go into what we watched this week. Troll the jerk in the matrix. Crumb spun, let the right one in. Yeah, Mr. Brooks and Monkey Business want to hold your hand. Real men and the misfits. You can count on me, Dumbo waitress. I'm a troll gone in 60 seconds. Call the sack, Mars attacks, compliance, high heels, real steel, chef, and three women. Get me home tonight, never been kissed. Mr. Mom, Batman, Jackie Brown, Bliss. Bring it on again, bringing out the dead. I know you watched eight heads in a double bag. Watched a movie, probably at home. We did some streaming on Netflix or Vimeo. Kurt, uh, I'd like to start with the guest. Uh, what what have you seen recently? Uh, there is uh, the Museum of Modern Arts Scorsese Polish Film Retrospective. God, that's yes. Uh, is going on right now and. Well, I've seen it before. I got to watch it on the big screen, which was a treat. All three hours of the Saragossa manuscript. Um, oh, uh, which so I, I don't know about this movie. Tell me about this movie. Okay, so it's in the late 60s. It's in Poland. It stars kind of like the James Dean of Poland at the time. I don't recall the actor's name. Um, and it's a three-hour, uh, seven to eight layers nested mindfuck movie it's basically inception you know 40 years before inception was made um and it is a beloved movie by people who just like flat out weirdness or they like movies that are highly storytelling driven so the basic gist of the story is we're in the middle of some war uh and a bunch of the soldiers hide uh, inside this inn in this small town as it's being bombed, and they find a book. And in the book is this story of this Spanish nobleman who is taking uh, his servants across uh, from one part of 
Spain to Madrid through this haunted region. And inside this region, he encounters um, like Muslim uh, ghosts and flesh-eating gypsies and whatever. But what's fascinating is every time he encounters someone, they stop and they tell their story. So at one point in the movie, you are at least seven storytellers in. Like a storyteller inside of the story, inside of their story, inside of their story, inside of their story. And I don't care how much of a mathematical or structured mind you have. There's no way, even this is my third viewing of the film. And at a certain point, I just do give up and go, I'm enjoying the movie for what it is. But if someone handed me a pen and paper, I could not diagram (laughs) off the top of my head where we are. But I have faith that there's so much confidence in the storytelling that I just have faith to just keep going. And I tell you, um, they pull it out of the fire. Like when there's a point where you're like, um, there's so many things going on. I can't even remember where we were like, and it's very uh, addressed directly in the film. In that the main character, the main character is the guy inside the first story. I don't think the movie ever actually comes back to the soldiers who find the book, uh, which may be a joke or maybe just an oversight. I don't know. Uh, But there's a point where the main character is going, I don't know where I am. Like he literally just says right to the audience, "Um, I'm as confused as you are. Let's just all go with it and hope it works out. Um, So, yeah. Is um so yeah it's it sounds sort of like a uh the book cloud atlas uh yeah, or yeah, it's, sort it's of funny. structure or sandman even the guy who I saw it with um at this screening he knows I'm not a fan of cloud atlas and he goes how can you love this movie <laughs> and hate cloud atlas uh I guess because this movie is about the joy of storytelling and it has like a you know, thousand and one Arabian nights kind of like there's skulls and spell casting sure. and cripples and just flat out craziness. Whereas the race new agey kind of, we're all on this path to being a better person. And some of us will and some of us won't that I found too blunt in cloud Atlas. That's what rubbed me the wrong way. And this movie, um, uh, it it is much more about the joy. It's got a big um, like Beethoven score, and it, it's 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 body. Like there's lots of there there are more overhanging and spilling breasts in this movie than has ever been put in any other movie. So there's that. Um, it does actually have a bit of a Tom Jones feel if you're a fan of the um, Alfred uh, Finney movie oh um, oh i've not i've not seen i've for a second there i thought you were talking about the singer no 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 no, no. The, the film I, I can't remember who directed the film but if the film is great um but it but it it also has lots of really creepy like cabalist spiritual like spell casting and there's a point in the, uh, there's one point in the middle of the film when the film just goes crazy and it, it just goes down in like right down into the basement where the main character finds the book inside of the soldiers reading the book and another character hastily takes it away from him and it's just kind of a joke like no 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 I can't give you the actual map to figuring this movie out so they just spirited off 
out of the frame and then he goes back to, he's like oh the book was it was right there and and uh, he has to go yeah the, the the director is uh Wojciech Haas and uh the film is very available it was hard to find for many years but now it's because of uh, the efforts of Coppola and Scorsese and other other filmmakers who really love this film um it's available on Blu-ray and DVD, and and it, it played as a part of this retrospective. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was a lot of fun. I I I feel like going in the third time. It's like okay, I got this. <laughs> I'm yeah. my feet are on the ground. But part of the joy of this, and so few movies do this nowadays. Part of the joy of this movie is saying we are going to sweep you up off your feet, and you're going to have to live with it. Um, you know, outside of a pen and paper. Like Primer is actually kind of. I was, was going to say headspaces. every time I watch every time I watch Primer, I think I'm going to understand the third act, but I never can grasp e- the exactly. plot. Exactly, particularly of the third act. with the father waking up and where they're running behind the yeah. house and having the conversation around the fountain. I mean, I've seen Primer like nine or ten times, but I still can't immediately after go, "Oh well, this is what happened." It, it and part of, there's a joy in that. There's a real joy in saying. You know, part of the reason is just letting the filmmaker take you away. It doesn't always have to be uh, completely right brain or whatever, like completely logical and coherent. Even if it is, if the filmmaker can unsettle you. um, And I mean, one of the things, the images in this movie is that the character will fall unconscious or um, go to sleep or whatever. And then he'll wake up under this noose where these two people have been hung and they're rotting and there's, you know, vultures picking at them. And he keeps waking up in the middle of this haunted land. And sometimes both of the guys are hanging. Sometimes there's no one in the noose. Uh, I don't even know if the differences mean different things. It might to the filmmakers, but it's really hard to process in the film. But it's a great image to, re- to, to keep coming back to of saying, uh, oh, you're back here. And it's not a good place to be. Like, <laughs> people have died and, and, and he's now in the middle of the wilderness by himself. But that's what this movie feels like. You're in the middle of the wilderness. But if movies are designed to tell stories, uh, this movie goes as far with that concept, I think, than any other movie. And it, it filters into a lot of different things. I, I, I'm sure Christopher Nolan is a fan of it to a degree because I feel Inception and a lot of the ideas Inception are, are done in a roundabout way here. Um, Neil Jordan's uh, in the uh, Company of Wolves uh-huh. is told in exactly that fashion and if you read interviews with Neil Jordan he's like yeah we were we we didn't have the balls to to be as complicated as uh the Saragossa manuscript but we were definitely aiming to do that because there's a storytellers inside storytellers in that film as well um I can't think of too many movies that that do it though um you know they always have a one layer flashback and that's fine that's a standard literature standard whatever but uh this this guy goes as far as anyone's ever gone with it. You know what I speaking of, you know, this is a this is a sort of uh Polish film festival that's been visiting art theaters all over the all over the North America brought to by Martin Scorsese. Um The Departed almost does that in that the fact that it has a flashback and then it cuts to modern times, uh, then it cuts to the current, you know, present tense and then it will cut to before like uh I watched The Departed recently and The Departed has moments where it's very clear like for example um you know uh vera fremenga moves into matt damon's apartment and they have this they have the talk about uh her the picture of her you know on the tricycle he's like yeah uh, this is not going in the living room and then like 30 minutes later in the movie 
Leonardo DiCaprio is at her apartment where she hasn't moved in yet and you know she's still packing up her stuff and he finds that portrait like that it's it's not quite the same because it's not you know uh, layered within but there was a weird intuitive uh, editing sense uh, to uh, that movie that reminded me of uh, like an Inception or something like that where um, it's just sort of folded in on itself and you're not necessarily sure where you are. And I wonder if Scorsese and his regular editor, editor, Thelma Schumacher, whether they have these sorts of conversations, because I find Scorsese's films are edited. I mean, I get into arguments with this with Andrew on the Cinecast all the time because he's like, there are continuity ever errors all through Scorsese's films. They're like horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible continuity. Editor. Uh, Errors, but I'm like, yeah, but they want the best take. They want the vibe more than also, the logic, right? And in something like something like Departed, which is so propulsive and so like to the extent that my most recent rewatch, I was like, oh, I'm not as big a fan as I used to because I'm finally sort of the fact that the characters are kind of shallow is getting to me. But like, that's not necessarily what the movie's about. The movie play, pays lip service to some interesting themes of like nature versus nurture and the mirror image of criminal and cop and everything, but really. It's about that just feeling of go, 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 go. And, and it's, um, and it's almost like, it it almost feels like punk rock. I mean, uh, you know, he has the dropkick Murphys playing during the uh, opening credits, but like, and, and uh, reprise later. And that's like, that's what it feels to me. It just feels like messy because it's about the energy and it's a, and it's about the sloppiness and it's about um, sort of, like it feels to me watching The Departed, which is weird because you know it feels to me like a perfect punk song, like like uh like an undertones, like a really perfect poppy, perfect hooks, perfectly messy, perfectly distorted. It's, uh, it's Sid Vicious redoing My Way. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sid Vicious doing redoing My Way, which he you know he put at the end of Goodfellas. Like that to me is what Departed feels like, which is it. You know, it hits all these great notes and it's all these great plays, but the but the thing that drives you through it is just how sloppy it is and how oh, like it doesn't give dirty a shit it is. At times. Yeah, it just doesn't give Which a shit. Which is funny because the Asian film, the, the the Hong Kong film, is it's not perfect either, but it definitely is going for that clockwork feel. Yeah. Which is exactly the opposite. It's it's why I, I I I can live with those two versions of those films. Like because they are they're so different. Um, they're so very, very different. Yeah, apparently, uh, coherence uh, is 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 coherence similar to uh, primer in that it's yes in that way. Yeah, it's it's funny uh, because I had a long conversation with um, uh, James Vander Van. Oh, I can't remember his name. The director writer uh, of of the film for Twitch Film. And he said that 90% of coherence – this is the science fiction kind of – James Ward Burkett. reality kind of thing. Uh, James Ward Burkett? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's saying 90% of the film is improvised. Uh, like they, they, they almost directed it like a murder mystery party. Like these are the key beats that your character has to hit. But everything else I want it to sound – as naturalistic as possible. So, and then they, they filmed the whole movie five times and edited whatever takes and parts were the best and basically built the movie 
as many movies I'm sure are built in the editing room. Uh, have you seen Coherence yet? No, I didn't get a chance to. Uh, Jim was trying to get a screening in Grand Rapids started, but it, we didn't get enough people. So that's a shame. It's it's yeah. a it's a knockout of a film. Um, it's highly rewarding of multiple watches, which is the same for the Saragossa manuscript. Is the same for Primer. <laughs> you know, is the same for that. It, it's a um, it's an interestingly shot film. Like it's very indie, very low budget, but then he does this fascinating thing where he leaves spaces between the edits. There's these black pauses between the edits and you know, they mean something like they, they kind of have a, like, why would you do this? Like, there's no way to accidentally do this. And they're not really, it doesn't feel like they're covering up errors. It, uh-huh. it feels like a very intentional Thing. If you go to the Twitch film piece, we, we spend a lot of time talking about that because as someone who likes to edit in their own time, like in as an amateur or whatever, that was the first thing that really hooked me into that film is that I've seen this done in other films, but it's usually for pacing or to cover up something. Whereas in this case, it's done very consciously. I feel like it's a story beat. Um, yeah. There's, is it so? So I heard and I don't want you to spoil this movie for me or the listeners at all. Um, and basically all I, all I've heard about this movie's plot and all I need to hear about this movie's plot is it's primer meets the monsters are doing Maple street. Um, but I also, uh, I understand that there's some level of sort of quantum mechanics, Schrodinger's cat. Like, well, is, it, is it sort of trying to imply like that sort of a thing in yeah, with the, it, 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 I mean that, that I would argue that that is the weakest, point in the entire film when one character says to other characters you've heard of what schrodinger's cat is and kind of explains it um okay it's a way to i understand i've taken physics courses i've taken quantum mechanics so i'm maybe not the average movie goer for this movie but um but i still feel that that's a bit too much of hand-holding of the film and it's the only scene in the movie where they really do that. Um, uh, although, in a way, I shouldn't criticize too much because you have a bunch of non-scientific people. Like, none of the characters have science backgrounds. And there's a they find, a, like, a book. And this book becomes, like, a talisman. Like, we need the book. We can't let other people find the book because it gives us more power. But they really don't understand. Like, there's nothing in the book that really... They just don't want other people to know. And that that is interesting in and itself because in a lot of films, like in the Groundhog Day, Source Code kind of um, Edge of Tomorrow uh, way, the idea of repeating things and being able to kind of do over things uh, is to get to the best version of yourself that is possible. That's how Bill Murray gets out of... um, Groundhog Day. It's 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 how Tom Cruise gets out of um, Edge of Tomorrow. It's certainly kind of the point of Source Code. In this movie, what makes it the best is that while that is being attempted, those attempts, in a way, make the main characters the worst version of themselves, and that's in- very interesting to me. And the movie, I think it's fair to say, is dark in that sense. Um, in that it. And see, even Primer, spoiler alert for Primer, Primer ends with one version of Shane Carruth trying to go and undo the out-of-control other version of 
Shane Carruth. So you as the viewer feel like at least some version of Shane Carruth in Primer has learned that what they started is not maybe a good thing and we should fix this problem. That is not the angle that Coherence uh, tackles and I love it for it. It, it. It's truly the Outer Limits Twilight. You mentioned the one Twilight Zone episode. Um, it truly has that vibe going for it, which I don't think any of these other Groundhog Day, Edge of Tomorrow, Source Code... Uh, primer they don't have a twilight zone energy which this movie does that's cool so you should see it <laughs> i'm fucking excited to see it i don't know what i'm gonna get to but i really would really want to um uh so uh yeah uh, as far as what i watched this week i'm gonna go ahead and throw a couple things out there real quick i've been trying to watch a lot more short films and uh since the last episode i've watched a lot of uh short horror films um so I'm going to go ahead and just throw the names of a couple of those out there. Um, there's the Sleepover, which is a, like a four-minute short. It's more of a comedy, um, but it sort of takes place in a world in which uh, – it's it sort of takes place in the world of the slasher movie sequel in which uh, 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 hinted at, at um, the beginning of you know Jason Goes to Hell where an FBI agent poses as a nubile teen taking a shower in order to lure Jason into a trap where he gets destroyed by secret you know by, by SWAT team members and people with automatic weapons uh, like the, the sort of world that implies in which everyone in the nation is aware of there's a slasher out there and he's an undead slasher and he's a mass murderer and he can't be stopped and we have to find a way to stop him like almost a disaster movie approach to the That's slasher movie. Like actually. it's almost. Uh, I don't think I, I, the Running Man. Maybe yeah, it, I don't know. Uh, the, yeah, not the book. The book. The Running Man. Not the, the uh, film. I think, I think only, yeah, I think Jason I think only really Jason goes to hell really addresses and that, and it and it and that's only like the first five minutes, and then it sort of becomes a weirder, different thing. But like, yeah, like it's almost like the. Uh, the world it implies is almost like them where you're just – or one of those sci-fi movies from the 50s where you're just with the military the whole time and you're like, all right, what are we going to do about this thing? Like that's the sort of world it implies to me. So The Sleepover is a short film. Um, I believe the director's name is Chris Kalari uh, and it's on um, Vimeo and it's like five minutes long and it sort of suggests – it takes place in Derry, Maine. Uh, and it's the town just understands they have a slasher problem and sort of it's about like what would a sleepover as a kid be like if you know that anytime parents are away and you have a babysitter then you're likely to get murdered by a guy with an axe or whatever so sleepover is really good cat the cat with hands is on youtube that's a movie from like 2001 um it combines it's sort of a fables uh, fairy tale sort of a thing it's like really short and it combines the creepiest stop motion i've ever seen i want to stop you right there and throw out um uh blood tea and red string have you ever seen this it's a 60 minute made by one person this one woman over 10 years uh stop motion animation which is it's like a the creepiest retelling of uh alice in wonderland um entirely with the stop motion it's even creepier than the um uh what's his name the the czech guy um uh, it's even creepier than his alice which is insanely creepy um and yeah it's uh i i guess i don't know if it's up on any social media i actually 
have a copy of it on DVD. Uh, I saw it at a film festival and, and managed to find a copy years ago. But I, I that's my in the running for and it's sure. and the one thing about this Alice in sure. Wonderland, this Bloodstring and Red Tea, is that it's completely without dialogue. So it's told entirely in silence. Yeah, the cat with hands is like a. Uh, it's, yeah, the cat with hands is like a. It's a student film, and it kind of feels like a student film, but it has the thing that most student films don't have, which is really dynamite art direction, where just everything looks and feels perfectly constructed. Whereas student films, you're mostly like going, okay, this is a good idea, and this is some good camera work, and unfortunately, they didn't have the budget to sort of realize it. So, cat with hands. Oh my fucking really scary movie. I'm just on Google Images. Oh really? Uh, the uh, really scary, the uh, really scary uh, two, 2013 movie. Uh, I think it was sort of a minor viral hit because it's like again, it's like a three-minute movie. You can watch all these movies within a span of ten minutes, and they're all online for free. So I'm asking you, go check those out. Um, it's this movie from 2013 called Lights Out. Um, and it's a woman, you know, getting ready for bed. She's walking around her house, turning out the lights. And I don't, I, you know, I can't spoil anything. But basically, when she turns out the light, she sees the outline of some kind of creature that, when she turns the lights on, it vanishes. And it's, you know, it's. I like short horror films because the thing about horror is it's like a comedy where it's a gag. You know, it, it works like sketch comedy where. You, you know, set, there's, there's a setup. There's, the there's you know there's the build. There's the punchline, and and I think and so these and, movies are mostly um like these movies are mostly that like they're sort of simple and they're sort of uh you know and and they're not like you know and and they're not like amazing but um you know they're they're not the the thing i like about you know feature-length horror movies is when they sort of build a sustained tone of just eeriness you know when when you're watching rosemary's baby and even movies you know even you know scenes where she's just doing housework or whatever just the way it's framed makes you feel crazy and dangerous and like social commentary and this kind of stuff as well so this yeah, there's so so this kind of stuff is strictly the gag, but um, but lights out is a really fucking good gag. Like it's really well done, um, and it has a rictus, which is a word I I learned from reading a review of um, I think it's Black Sabbath, which is the uh, Mario Bava um, anthology film. A rictus is a figure whose face is like sort of permanently open into a smile, which is which is sort of a popular uh, sort of demon uh, design, and they're fucking creepy. <laughs> and so, lights out's really good. I found this guy on YouTube. His name is Drew Daywalt, and he has sort of just been cranking out over the past five years like twenty four-minute short horror films that are based on these gags, and none of them are spectacular, but they're all really solid and fun. And um, they're the sort of thing that come October when I'm watching a lot of these movies, and you know, in a row, I want to. I would love to just throw these in the middle, and because they're just they're it's a lot of fun to remember. Like, oh, you can watch a horror movie because I mean, these days you watch the average horror movie that you haven't seen. Um, you're probably not going to be blown away. You're going to find a couple things to like about it. You're probably not going to like it that much, just because horror is so hard to do well. But I think short horror films are probably easier to do well. So um, just because they're that well, let me throw out the uh, the my my favorite short horror movie ever made, and that is uh, from 1991. Um, it was actually Harry Selleck's protege. 
that made it, but he died of cancer mm-hmm. like shortly thereafter, so he never became a like a big deal afterwards. But it's called the Sandman. Okay. Have you ever seen this? Okay. I have not. I, I should look this it's, up. It's, I, not. I, I should look this up. It's it, it starts off like just kind of gothic and it's about a kid that's trying to fall asleep and he thinks that there's this creature stalking in his house and it's very Tim Burton esque and, and, and you know, really kind of that way. Uh but then it just decides we're gonna go all the way and uh, the ending of this uh movie will would give any child nightmares nightmares <laughs> which considering it's kind of about a nightmare is 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 apropos and it's uh, it's on youtube i i remember for about 10 years um i was looking for a copy of this like i was sending letters out and uh because email is kind of uh, i saw this again at a film festival in 1990 or 1992 or something. And so we're kind of pre-internet and, and whatever. And then YouTube came along in like 2005 and I'm like, Oh, maybe it'll show up. So I watched for about, I don't know, six, five, six years. And then in 2010, someone finally put it up there and I was very happy. Oh um, yeah. yeah. I, I was really happy. Oh yeah. I, I was really happy when I was able to go online uh, and find a capital, uh, uh, a copy of, what's that? um, Oh fuck. What's that? I think it's a Canadian horror, horror musical with short Cullen, with the Sean Cullen. Oh, Legend of Beaver Dam. Um, yes, Legend yeah. of Beaver Dam. <laughs> yes, Legend of Beaver Dam. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I love Legend of Beaver Dam. And that was not online I, for the I, longest we were time. In, I was in Spain with my wife at a film festival, at Sitges Film Festival. And I said, jokingly, to Laura Jane, this before we uh, went to see this, because it was playing at like, they do in Sitges they do like a... a Two in the morning, they play five hours worth of a compilation of stuff that you can get on one ticket. Like so, you can oh, wow. if you don't go to the regular oh, wow. festival screenings for like five euros, you can see three features and five shorts. Just and they just play it overnight, right? Sweet. And it's nice because they they have Sweet. this gorgeous theater that looks more like a church than a cinema, and and the whole bit. And I was joking to Laura Jane, like, the only time that we were there, because it's, like, a long festival and we were only there for, like, five days, um, was to, to watch The Legend of Beaver Dam among, and Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is another film I wanted her to see. Um, and I'm like, the whole reason we've come to Sitches is for me to let you see The Legend of Beaver Dam. It's that fucking good. <laughs> and so we go to the thing and whatever, um, and... We're waiting, you know, we get there and uh, it was actually the very first thing in this block. So the, the films hadn't started yet. And Laura Jane gets up and goes to the washroom and she's waiting in the, to go to the washroom. And, there, you know, it's a ladies washroom. So there's, of course, there's a wait. And there was a guy standing beside the ladies washroom for reasons unknown. Um, and he saw that she was wearing a Fantasia shirt at the time. And he goes, oh, I'm from Canada as well and blah, blah, blah. And uh, did you go to Fantasia? And she's like, yeah, I've been there for, with my husband or whatever. And and, uh, and he's like, oh, so what, you know, so you just at Sitges to see a film festival. And she's like, my husband said we've come all the way to Spain to watch The Legend of Beaver Dam. And it was Jerome Sable, the director. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, so he had oh, this really nice. awesome, very <laughs> authentic, not blowing smoke up your ass because she didn't even know who he was, right? right he was right. waiting by the ladies' bathroom right, right. because that's where he was going to go on stage to introduce the film so so had lots of cocktails afterwards with uh with jerome and and whatever but i've still not seen his feature uh stage fright which uh some people love some people don't uh but yeah it came out on vod and it it actually played here very briefly in the cinema i just 
never got out to see it. But man, I've seen Legend of Beaver Dam five or six times, and uh, at various different things, it's always good. You know, you know, stage fright is. Yet you know, another, you know, stage fright is yet another in a in a long line of that, movies that I have an idea where I'm like, oh, you know, it'd make a good movie, and I sort of walk around for a couple yeah, weeks with that, that idea, and then I find out that that is a recently. movie that was made <laughs> yeah. recently. So yeah, so like last year, I was I was sort of like, oh, they should make a slasher movie that takes place at a fucking that it's a slasher movie with fucking theater kids with Glee because theater kids are so dramatic and. And like that's the that's like a one sort of subgenre of like teenagers that I haven't seen in a well, slasher movie. I think this movie. one has a lot of giallo and I was like, kind of influence as well. Okay, it's more giallo. Like they're definitely capitalizing on. I think it's a summer camp for theater kids, so it's a bit of glee, it's a bit of right. that and whatever. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I'd like to see it. Yeah. I just haven't that got was, there. Yeah. That was. And I was like, oh, God damn it. Fucking, and that was fucking Jerome Sable. So good work. Like the other time that, the other time, big time that happened for me was I, when I was in high school, I wrote a script because I had seen, uh, there's this horrible teen movie called, uh, something like Tucker must die or something. Uh, and it was just, it was like this, this Lothario jock. And then all of the girls that he was like dating at the same time who he blew off. They all get together and they're like, "All right, we should take care of him and take him out." And I was like, "And I was like expecting for some reason in my head like a Kill Bill sort of a thing where it was like a crazy like action movie, like a revenge movie or whatever." And it's, of course, it's not. It's just like they fucking prank him and he's in his underwear and you know whatever. Um, so in my so when I was in high school, I wrote a script that was like, "All right." And at the time, I was really into Jackie Chan and uh, Bruce Lee movies. So I was like, all right, I'm going to make a movie. It's like a martial arts kind of movie. And it's about this Lothario. And he picks up this girl. And and this girl gets kidnapped. And she's in their temple. Like, she's in their sort of stronghold. And he has to fight a way through the stronghold to save her. And then they have to fight their way out. But the people who kidnapped her were his, uh, his army, his, his league of ex-girlfriends who hated him. And they have to fight their way through, and then Ed fighting their way through, they she finds out about like the kind of guy he is, and they have to decide whether they want to still be in a relationship. Well, right. Scott Pilgrim is is essentially the same premise, but is done like a million times better and like more interesting and sort of with better influences. And you know, it's Scott Pilgrim the the comic book. When I read that, I'm like, well, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, this is done way. I've and, seen that happen. And, I have a buddy way of mine better who than swears I he had the uh, Edge of Tomorrow like script idea. He just never turned it into a film when he was in high school. <laughs> right. And uh, right. for that matter, um, Jay Cheel, um, director of Beauty Day and regular on the Film Drunk, was making a movie about a guy who could not get permits to do a tightrope walk over Niagara Falls and all the issues with tightrope walk. And he just the moment Man on Wire came out, he's like, "That's the end of that movie." <laughs> Yeah, not making that. Yeah, so he's got all this footage he shot yeah, and, for that know. film that I don't know. It's just there. Like he just Sorry. said, I'm not making. There's no way Sorry. to follow that. It's it's also one of those like just humbling it's it's also one of those like just humbling moments where you just have to sort of take your hat off to anyone who gets a movie made. You're just like, oh, you made a fucking movie, and I sat around and I complained about how bad movies were, but I and I thought about ways I could make good movies, but I didn't make them. I just complained about it, and you, and you got, got a fucking movie. Made. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't take it personally. It's it could be just, the worst. It there be... it is. And if it's if it's Scott Pilgrim yeah, or Man on Wire or whatever, then you're like, well, definitely hats off because those are films made with real care and real intelligence and real quality. 
yeah. Um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's like, just it's yeah, it's. It's like it could be the worst trauma movie in the world, but I'm like, well, I haven't made a trauma movie. <laughs> you know, I've had it. I've certainly had enough money at one point in my life. I've had three hundred dollars in the bank account where I could have made a trauma movie, um, but I didn't. So, like, uh, it's 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 almost a good thing to remember, especially if you have a, a podcast like this and you're going to be constantly talking about movies and constantly disappointed by you know movies and stuff like that you just have to sort of always take a step back and just realize oh yeah all movies are really hard to make and everyone who gets movies made it really accomplished something Even someone like uh, neil uh, green if you've seen uh that crazy uh, fateful findings movie it's kind of like the modern day the room um yeah, he's he's got like four oh, really? or five films they're all self-financed he directs he's often stars they're completely uh baffled by the typical language of cinema like he, he has no clear idea of what eye lines are or what you know what i mean like but yeah. he's given it you know and yeah and, uh the, you know they're they're strangely entertaining in their own way just because he's not following any rules yeah so pretty much the only thing yeah I don't so pretty much the only thing i don't lend that uh i don't lend so, sort of that uh, empathy to is Hollywood movies because those movies are easy to make because yeah, people are just doing their jobs and getting paid and there's a big studio behind it so pumped into them and yep so all shit so I don't so all shit so I don't you know, I watched uh, God, I watched the two wor- my two least favorite movies of the year in a row um, and they were both had the same problem where they're just they just were they took forms that have now become excuses to make lazy movies um one was the devil devil's do which is a found footage movie about a couple who realize that they're they're gonna give birth to the antichrist or whatever and you know i like found footage movies all right i like the form i'm always constantly disappointed that no one um makes an effort to make the form make sense you have to to justify it resolution if you've not seen it yet because it's it's a found footage movie about finding footage inside a found footage movie so it's 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 hard to explain why that is good but it is those guys took so much care and there's so much intelligence and there's a playfulness with it as well like they're very confident um and it it's it, it's it's cuz it's not a found footage movie in the sense that they're not filming themselves but they're finding media whether it's audio recordings yeah. super 8 films vhs tapes of someone else recording them that was the uh, that was the plot of uh, sinister too with ethan hawk was he goes up in his attic and he finds all these super, like these super 8 movies of previous families who've lived there being murdered and there and those sections where he's watching those movies it's the creepiest thing like the rest of it's kind of subpar paranormal uh, horror movie you know but like that the, those Super 8 films where he's just finding footage is amazing. There's a point in resolution where one of the characters, like there's a definite sense of talking outside of the film because they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're each, with each subsequent, uh, like it starts off with like glass developed photographs from the 1800s and uh-huh. it's slowly working its way uh-huh. up, you know, oh, through the technology. Oh, through the technology. Right. So, it, I mean, it ends pretty much um, uh, with with Skype, right? But, um, there's at one point in the movie where they're they're finding like you know 35 or or um, eight millimeter films and 
<laughs> one of the character goes, if we could just make it to the next reel, like they're finding all the things. And I'm like, that's just the perfect way of articulating a, how to survive a horror yeah. movie. Just make it to the next reel. Oh, that's, that's, like, that's, that's, that's how a screenwriter is feeling when they're writing a horror movie. Like, oh, gee, OK, exactly, we just got to keep their attention exactly. to the next reel. Like, like, I know the big climax is coming, but we got to we got to fill these next it's, 15 minutes it's, with it's something. very, very clear. <laughs> and yeah, uh, when you do get to the end of the film there's a final like almost end credit framing device which is also actually does qualify it as a found footage like even though it doesn't look like it when you're watching it there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on and you describe this kind of movie to people and they're like eh, found footage they already don't like found footage and they're like, hey, you know whatever but i'm like no no this is actually yeah. of all the found footage movies i've seen in the last little while, this is certainly the best one I've seen. So the thing about Devil's Do is, it's so the thing about Devil's Do is, it's CGI all the scares are based on CGI, which makes the whole found footage conceit like crazy to me. Which is isn't the whole point of this is you don't spend money on anything and you get scares and very simple. Like it's easy to do a jump scare when the camera can turn around 180 degrees at any moment, like stuff like that. Like and but all the all this stuff is just like really really bad. Like sci-fi movie, right. sci-fi channel movie CGI level CGI, it's horrible. And then the other thing is documentaries on Netflix, and that's just an excuse to you can just shovel any fucking thing on Netflix in the documentary section, and someone will watch it because people they sort of even people who like who like care about film they often turn their critical brain off when they are watching documentaries and they judge it purely on yeah. Yeah, they oh, they judge it purely on like, oh, well, what did I learn from watching this? And so I watched Doc of the Dead, horrible. which is the most horrible. Oh, it's it's the most oh, aimless the bullshit like zombie documentary ever, and it's just it's it spends most time most of the time talking about fucking zombie walks and fucking nerds talking about how they'd survive a zombie apocalypse. And guess what? If you don't have enough nerds in your life telling you about how they no. sur- they would survive a zombie apocalypse, then you're lucky. Then you're lucky. You I saw never that, seek that out. at Hot Docs. It was one of the midnight screenings. Um, I went and then I watched the credits. And when the credits came up, or maybe it was even in the Q&A, and the director said, oh, yeah, I made that People versus George Lucas movie. I'm like... I've just made a big mistake <laughs> for attending this movie. And make no mistake, graphically, like your kind of post-production interstitial kind of elements in Dock of the Dead are very professionally done. They're they're kind of lazy, but they're prof- they're glossy. Yes, they're they're, and, they're professional and looking. Yes, the quality of the Talking Heads people, like they have like Greg Nicotero and Joe Dante, and they got a lot of good people. Like a lot of people, and Ramiro, of course, yeah. um, and Sh- Simon Pegg, I think. There's a lot of people I like talking in this movie, but I was so fucking pissed off watching this movie. Yeah, I, like, well, this I watched- is exactly what yeah, I, well, I watch about. I mean, I feel like Morgan Spurlock kind of enters this territory. It's like, yeah, that's popular. People want to know about that. I'll just do that and pay money and money will open the doors to getting the right people. But money isn't necessarily the thing that makes a great movie. No, I mean, the antidote to this is shortly after I saw Birth oh. of the Living Dead. Have you seen that? So Birth of the Living Dead is super focused. It's just about Night of the Living Dead. It's not about the series. It's just about that one movie. It's just about 
that and and I mean that's a movie. Everyone fucking anyone who likes horror movies, they've seen Night of the Living Dead. They know why it's important. They know the story of of you know Dwayne Jones showing up and them just casting him, even though it wasn't a black character in the script. Like the like it's the most well worn territory maybe in horror history. Um, and it's still great because it is so focused. Like and it just goes deep and it just dives deep and all these horrible documentaries on Netflix. The one thing they have in common is they're just so shallow. They just jump and jump and jump. Like, well, let's cover this and this and this, and they have no idea. Whereas, like this movie dedicates three minutes to the sort of the cinematic legacy of Sidney Poitier. Like, well, this is the kind of movie Sidney Poitier would do, and it dedicates like three minutes to that, just so you can like see by contrast why Dwayne Jones, his character in Night of Dead, is so different. And like, it doesn't just have the typical, you know, stock footage of race riots and Vietnam, you know, Vietnam War footage, which always accompanies the story of Night of the Living Dead. Like, oh, well, this is why it happened. Like, it tells like it like actually tells the story of like. Uh, like it actually is like anyway at this point in time the Tet offensive happened and here's what the Tet offensive was at this and then like a month later the Kerner commission came out and here's what the Kerner commission is and that was a government uh commission on how, what they can do to prevent race riots and like it it just does that extra level of detail and Romero is so engaged and he's God having knows so much he fun spent that's like what talking about this movie right like it's pretty hard to get him yeah like it i mean it, i've seen him speak many times he lives in toronto i've seen him i've talked to him myself i mean it's just kind of he's just he's a very enthusiastic guy but at the yeah. same point you get the sense that if yeah. you don't know what you're doing interviewing him he's just going to fall into the same things that he said a thousand other times yeah and this in this one he really yeah and this in this one he really is not doing like they go deeper into like his commercial career Have you ever seen his and stuff like that like, no i haven't it's like an industrial no i haven't film, but he's done it completely in the style of people at a bridge oh yes okay yep. no i did see that, that oh was, yes okay no i did see that that, that was in the movie. yeah it is in the movie that was in the movie um so the, uh, um so the uh, so anyway, it's that's that's sort of like the good version, and again, it just makes Doc of the Dead look that much worse. I really quickly did want to talk about Kenneth Anger. Um, have you seen many Kenneth Anger films? Kurt, huge hole in my filmography. So uh, you're I'm, you're talking to a blank slate. Sure. So um, I'm not. Sure. So um, I'm not. I I have tried many times to sort of get into experimental film because I mean the whole point of this show is to just sort of understand the wide realm of film that exists and film cultures and try to get as much of it as you can and try to broaden your horizons. So like that's an important thing for me. So I try to I try to watch experimental films every once in a while, but. Usually I'm just met with the same thing, which is that looks pretty. Don't know what it means, or that didn't look pretty. Still don't know what it means. Like, I it's it's very. Uh, I find experimental films. If it, there's no narrative, I find it very opaque. Um, so, uh, but when I was in college, that was sort of uh, an important era for me to discover a lot of film. Like that was where I discovered John Waters, and that was where I discovered Buster Keaton, and that's where I discovered Kenneth Anger. And uh, sort of the, I think one of the big reasons Kenneth Anger really spoke to me was that was also the time I was the first time I was living outside of home. I was way at college, and that was the first time I was like sort of just exploring being queer and like you know hooking up with guys and stuff like that. And 
because it was just sort of the thing I could never have done at my childhood home in, you know, in, in my Catholic high school. None of that could have uh, occurred. So, um, so Kenneth Anger being a sort of a seminal gay filmmaker from the uh, 50s, 60s and 70s, that was, you know, that was a sort of crazy thing for me to explore and sort of get in touch with. And so Kenneth Anger, his big film that everyone should see is Scorpio Rising. Um, Scorpio Rising is maybe the most influential experience. I'm going to say this and then sometime later I'm going to discover I'm wrong because I don't know a ton about experimental film. But as far as I'm concerned, Scorpio Rising is the most influential experimental film ever made because it is the – if you ever wondered like why uh, Scorsese in Mean Streets when there's a big crazy fight scene, uh, Please Mr. Postman comes on the radio or – you know why Tarantino has stuck in the middle with you when so a cop is being tortured, or why why David Lynch, uh, you know, uh, uses sixties pop music and Blue Velvet the way he does. It's all in Scorpio Rising. Scorpio Rising is a loose narrative with no dialogue of sort of um, you know biker guys sort of tuning up their motorcycles, getting all their gear on, um, going out, causing a ruckus, and then it sort of devolves into. At one point, it it, it devolves into sort of a, a, a sort of a gay orgy, and then at one point, it devolves into sort of a fascist rally. Um, and it's yeah, and 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 it's sort of exploring the thematic connection between biker, like the biker culture and gay culture and S and M culture and and fascism, and you know, they're themes that are often you know put together. It's not hard to find the connection between bikers sure, and S&M, absolutely. you know, it's, it's not hard to find the, the connection between uh, S&M and gay culture or bikers and gay culture or S&M and fascism. Like it's one of the reasons this is one of the most coherent, easily readable experimental films I've ever seen is because the things it's doing is, you know, the, the sort of the themes it's tackling are, are, are well-worn. Um, you know, you don't have to have ever lived in that lifestyle or even have to ever, ever seen cruising to really kind of get that idea. You know, um, you, 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 all you need to, I was gonna say, when they like police academy movie in broad comedies, like police academy on that level, hell, even in Mad Max, the road warrior, I, I feel that there's a huge element of that. Exactly. So, but the thing about Scorpio rising is number one, everything's super fetishistically shot from, you know, the pistons to the working on the engines to the chrome like you know buffed chrome to the to the leather to the to the metal studded bracelets to the rings they're putting on their fingers everything is beautifully shot it's so fetishistic and glorious and everything but it is a non-stop uh, playlist where you hear all of these songs from start to finish of 60s pop music uh 60s and 50s pop music um so, you know, so it ha- it juxtaposes kind of these threatening guys getting all, you know, on bikes and it juxtaposes all this with like this there this one shot where this guy he's in his garage and he's tuning up his motorcycle and my boyfriend's back kicks in and as it kicks in the camera does this uh crazy kind of telephoto pan up from his uh from his motorcycle to him to this like statue of the grim reaper above him and the statue it looks like a halloween decoration or something like the kind of thing that you could conceivably see just being shoved away in the garage i mean it's a very carefully composed shot but it also doesn't necessarily betray the reality of the scene um and 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 with that with that crazy shot and with my boyfriend's back playing, it's the most perfect thing I've ever seen. Like it's, it's the perfect combination of creating menace out of, 
the opposite, which is, you know, yeah. bubbly, catchy pop music. I was going to say, uh, what Lynn Ramsey, the, the Scottish filmmaker, she's very effective at doing that. I, I don't know if... What, what films have Lynn Ramsey made? We need to talk about Kevin Okay. And uh, okay, we need to talk about Kevin Kalar, which which is full of that, like full sure. of that. Every song is used. Sure, ironic isn't quite the right word, but, yeah. but a, a happy song yeah. is something it, very menacing. It's all about but the juxtaposition. It is. It's all, all about, about the juxtaposition, and and it's 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 about sort of underlying Kubrick. Kubrick the, is the uh, it's irony, but it's not irony. In all of his films sure, use sure. use pop music, sure, sure. singing in the rain, singing in the rain. It's a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. Whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, he loves doing that too. So yeah. So this is. I mean, in 1964, when Scorpio Rising came out, this wasn't really a thing. Uh, people didn't really have movies that were scored by pop songs because it was so expensive. And in fact, this is one of the most expensive experimental films ever made at the time. It doesn't look super expensive, but the, but the soundtrack playing all of these playing like, I think like 13 songs, uh, maybe not that many, probably like uh, 10 or something, but at any rate, like start to finish all of them, just the same way they would sound on a record with the two, you know, seconds pause in between. Like, that, you know, it cost him like $65,000 for a movie that, you know, was later banned, uh, you know, and was later taken up to uh, a higher California court where it was proved deemed to be not obscene. Um, it was sort of a landmark case in that. And so Kenneth Anger, uh, to me, that this is a film on, on uh, YouTube. So if, if you want to see it, because Kenneth Anger is still alive and he owns the rights to all of his movies. And that means... You know, like the same way that uh, Russ Meyer's widow has sort of an iron grip on the rights to his movies, and they're so hard to find at a reasonable yeah, who's price. Who's the guy that does? Uh, uh, the you will buy filmmaker that does like Titicut Follies and and uh, oh, yeah. all that stuff. He owns all oh, of his yeah. own stuff. So if he says, "Eh, I'm not going to put this out on DVD," <laughs> then it doesn't come out. Yes, exactly. So yes, exactly. So um, uh, Kenneth Anger has released like two DVD volumes of collections of his short films, but you get five short films on one DVD, and it's like thirty five dollars or something like that. It's it's something. So Scorpio Rising is on YouTube, but he has sort of an interesting mix of capturing sort of early gay pre Stonewall culture, which is always fascinating to me. Um, he has a uh, he has a he is sort of a mysticist, so he uses a lot of sort of allusions to uh, you know uh, Greek and Roman gods and and mythology and stuff like that. Scorpio Rising obviously is an astrology reference, um, and uh, isn't it a hookup thing too? Like, what's your sign? <laughs> kind of thing, isn't that a? Is am I, am I overstretching it? It's. I, I think that might have been more of a 70s thing. I think that became a thing like the 70s. Um, I, I tried watching a YouTube video in which someone explained to me what Scorpio Rising meant, but the YouTube person was kind of intolerable, so I didn't make it too far in. But um, but he has this – he makes these films that are uh, sort of sensual above anything else. Like he's much more interested in – sort of the look of something than the form. Um, so they're, they're, as far as experimental films go, they're easy to watch. Um, Fireworks is another good one. Um, uh, Poose Moment uh, is a good one. And they're just, uh, they're these really beautiful, opulent kind of movies that are very fetishistic. Like he has this one movie 
uh, Oud, 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 Oud Fis, which is, you know, uh, basically it's like 12 minutes of slow motion fountains, water cascading, uh, you know, like splashing into each other and all different kinds of forms of drops of water flying through the air. And it's just about sort of the beauty of that. And it's set to this beautiful, you know, kind of symphony. And, um, but, uh, the thing about, yeah, Scorpio Rising ha- is definitely the touchstone upon which, like, all of those filmmakers who utilize pop music uh, in sort of ironic means um, to, you know, to signify dread or menace or or, or violence. Um, like, you definitely, if you're interested in that sort of thing uh, and those directors, you should definitely check out Scorpio Rising. I can't recommend it enough. And... I not, personally, none of his other films really come close, but in, in general, I find him to be the kind of experimental filmmaker where it's easier to watch than, say, a Stan Brackage movie because that's my in to experimental film. That's the guy when I think of who's the most known experimental filmmaker that I've seen a lot of his films, uh, both the ones where he's scratching on the film, which I think he's most known for, but also like this autopsy stuff and whatever, um, I've seen a lot of his stuff, um, yeah. and Chris Marker, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I, don't know, I don't know Chris Marker. He's I, don't know, I don't know Chris Marker. Um, it's the precursor of okay. uh, the Gilliam movie, Twelve Monkeys, right? Right. Okay. Yes. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. Then there's the, 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 the when you when you say like gay experimental filmmakers, I think of Derek Jarman and Jack Smith, but they're they're yes. way way after him. Yes. Way. Well, the thing about uh, Jack, well, uh, Jack, Jack Smith and Andy Warhol and that uh, whole that scene, was, that was sort of uh, that was, that was that was sort of East Coast, and that was and they they were kind of going on concurrently, but developing Warhol, very different things. Well, Warhol, Warhol again, Warhol, I feel his, his films are interesting. His his films are interesting to hear about and to read about, and the thing about right, watching right, them can be so uh, tedious. Manhattan, um, <laughs> you can't get more than that. Sure, sure, that's a. It's kind of sure, that's a. State it's kind of tedious to look at the Empire, the, Sorry, for, Empire State Building for twelve State. hours. Yeah, but but the but which is something which is one of the reasons I find Kenneth Anger one of the more accessible. But um, so they were kind of concurrently working on the same way. Like Kenneth Anger at the time was really young. He got you know he became friends with uh, Kinsey. Uh, in fact, his first sort of major film, which is sort of a dream sequence in which he. Hooks up with a with a with a with a Navy sailor who who later kicks his ass. You know, it's sort of a a dream sequence. It's again, it's more narrative than something like Unchin um, Andalu, but it's that kind of same style. I, I, it's funny. Um, it's, maybe it's an interesting segue if you're saying that he spent the most of his money on the soundtrack. Uh, the the other like yeah. what I've watched recently movie um, is Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, which. Has possibly if you if you scaled up the dollars, <laughs> probably yeah. has the most expensive soundtrack yeah. ever made, and it's I think it's one considered pretty early pioneer in the use of pop music. Oh, absolutely on that the was, soundtrack. Oh, right? absolutely. So that was... a friend of mine gave me the Blu-ray of this recently. I watched it yesterday, and uh, I mean I've seen the film many times, but I, I don't know whether I'm an idiot or not. But this was the film where I really realized that. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a, a short sketch of something, and then it's a montage to some pop music, and then it's another short sketch mm-hmm. of something happening, and then it's a, you know, cut to just 
you know, them on the road with the music playing in the background. And yeah, they, they let almost all of the songs play out in their entirety in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> just, just because. Yeah. It's, it's not a surprise that it's, it's not a surprise that this in during the seventies, even before the birth of MTV, like the form of the music video was sort of born because in the six, in the late sixties and early seventies and that new Hollywood period, that that was kind of the way a lot of, Filmmakers and my were question scoring to you is, movies. do you think this comes directly from Kenneth Anger, or do you think it's inevitable that we would well, go there? Well, I mean, I mean, uh, Easy Rider, well, I mean, I mean, uh, Rider is six, like what 69 So and 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 Scorpio Rising is sixty three. So I think probably by the time it got it sort of filtered out to Dennis Hopper, it became a more common thing. I mean, you look at the Graduate that has a pop music score, but that was that was a score that. Simon and Garfunkel, like a lot of those songs, they wrote but, for but still, the graduate, the and that's a more that's common two years practice before Easy Rider. Right, 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 right. So it's it's it sort of just filtered, so it's, it's, it filtered out, and I'm not saying that Scorpio Rising is the first movie to ever use pop music to score a scene, but it's definitely. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even say. I mean, it's been a while since I saw Easy Rider, to be honest, but. Uh, I I don't feel like Easy Rider is using no, no, quite the same way it's where it's not, almost it's ironic. It's like it's it's heavy metal bands at the time. Like Steppenwolf was considered a heavy metal band. That the tone of the scene is supposed to be opposite to the tone right. of the song. Right. Like so, even the final song, which was so, specifically for the film, is in line with what just happened. Also, it should be said, Kenneth Anger has impeccable taste in pop music and and, score, and all the songs. Like even even if you're not interested in that gay subculture, even if you're not interested in SNM, even if you're not interested in what Kenneth Anger has to say about the connections between all these things, like just watching these beautiful images set to these amazing songs is in itself very entertaining. Um, so yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's definitely. I mean, Blue Velvet itself is a song in this movie. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that's super influential and it's, he's, he's made other films that are good and I don't consider them nearly as gripping, but for me, uh, who, who is constantly returned to different experimental filmmakers and rarely found an in, uh, I, I kind of hold on to Kenneth Anger for dear life. Like maybe at one point I'll be able to watch Flaming Creatures and understand what's going on and not turn it off five minutes in because well, I'm so this lost. This new or... um, laboratory in Harvard that makes these experimental documentaries, um, I feel, is a good way in to experiment. They're features, but like they did Leviathan and then Manicamana. Oh. Um, they're, oh, they're experimental right. I lo- films, I love no doubt. Like, they're flat out. I would consider Leviathan. Like, you know, when they're programmed at TIFF, they're programmed in the wavelength section. They're programmed in the experimental film section. And yet, I feel they're fairly accessible. There was a, um, there was a film called RR, and it was three hours long, and it was nothing but footage of trains going across the United States. And I mean, clearly that's experimental, but at the same point, it's very hypnotic and totally addictive. So eh, there's, there, there are other ways in that, but, but uh, I should at least look on YouTube. Well, those kind of come from the tradition of like, I suppose, right? Like, yeah. And, but in a way (laughs) those films are experimental films as well. Right. Sure. Oh okay. sure, I, I've watched, like, sure, yeah, and I, I've watched like uh, some Man Ray, uh, yeah. you know, the photographer. He he made some films which again are just 
They're they are literally experimental in the fact that they're not a thesis. They're him just trying to see what something would look like. You know, they're him experimenting with well, what if you have the texture of light streaming through this shadow? Like so, this shadow is going on this texture. And when I think of experimental films, actually, is is actually some new image accomplished in some distinctly non like the breckage scribbling directly on the film. That's often what I think of when I think of avant-garde film right but then the godard stuff is kind of yeah. narrative and kind of uh you know still yeah, is just I, whacked I would yeah i would i would i would consider something like uh, sympathy for the devil being like an experimental yeah. documentary um but yeah so uh if you are interested in experimental films and you want like a very accessible one this is a like a 16 minute movie that's just full of amazing pop music and great images and it's a great you know it's a great time capsule and it's easy to follow thematically even if there's not an actual narrative and um so yeah uh definitely everybody should watch scorpio rising and uh try to check out those uh horror movies too because those are a lot of fun um we just got an email from dean stanley dean stanley says Next episode? Where is it? It's been ages, guys. Don't keep a brother waiting so long. Dean, P.S. You guys should do a comedy director like Albert Brooks or David Wayne next year. So, uh, hey, Dean. So, uh, hey, Dean. Uh, you're on the podcast now. Good timing. Yeah, good, good work. Uh, yeah, good, good work. Uh, when you hear this, uh, you'll know exactly when we recorded it because uh, you have a record of it in your email. But uh, with that said, uh, the, the, the people, the listeners, they're clamoring for a new director to cover. We got a really, really fascinating one that we haven't even really talked about at all um, so far. Usually we like to give at least a little overview. Um, so let's just jump right into uh, Samuel Fuller. Soldiers, reporters, square jaws that frame their faces, Japanese Americans showing up in so many places. I'll make a western, a war film too. I'll make a social drama, you know it's true. I'm Samuel Fuller. 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 I'm Samuel. So, Andrew. You're not Andrew James. No. You're Kurt <laughs> You're talking to someone else. Uh, it's, it's the other one of you. Uh, you. The other one. You guys. Oh, it's the other one. It's the other one. Hey, Kurt. Yes. Um, tell me about your introduction to Samuel Fuller, because before we started prepping for this episode. My introduction to Samuel Fuller was I had heard a lot about him, had seen none of the movies. Um, and I saw like a bad VHS quality bootleg of park row. And I thought that was a, a really good one, but didn't really give me an idea of who he was. Um, um okay. So I got a lots of different introductions to Sam Fuller. Um, sure. I took a film class uh way back when uh when i was in university and i think we saw shock corridor so that would have been the first fuller film that i watched and then i remember many many years later um watching the dreamers the bertolucci movie was that 2002 Mm -hmm. um 
and there's a lot there's a big deal made of a bunch of sort of canonical films and shot corridor is one of them and shortly thereafter i got when when did they reconstruct the big red one i'd i'd like to say that the reconstruction of the big red one when they came out like- with that 2005 or something okay that was my real i have no idea why you asked me to be on this show because i am (laughs) the least expert possible of sam fuller now i saw the reconstructed version of big red one it's one of my favorite war films of all time i love the film to death uh and i've watched it many many times uh ironically for this show i had it lent out to someone so i had to watch the non-reconstructed version which was really weird after after really oh, yeah. knowing the film for the other version that's such a weird like the abridged version it's such a weird sensation like that doesn't exist in other art forms that doesn't exist in <laughs> painting like there's no like well for a while we thought the mona lisa was this so everything up to 19 like yeah. everything up to 1996 when people talk about the Mona Lisa, they're talking about this. But then we found out there was more Mona Lisa. And so well, we it, now we know the Mona Lisa has these other people around her. It does exist pe- in books, <laughs> though, because I read Stephen King's unabridged version of The Stand. Oh, yeah. I've never read the abridged version. I, I, I read The Stand when it came out as the longer version. Uh, so it, It's certainly way more prevalent in uh, in, in film. And it's... It can be. I remember. Yeah, I remember when we, we were going over the Steven Spielberg episode. We were talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I was like, "Well, you know what? We're talking about Steven Spielberg, the director. We're talking about the movie he movies he made. I'm going to watch the theatrical version of Close Encounters." And I realized that was the one version I had never seen, and it's not nearly as good as the uh, like director's cut. Right. I've never seen. I've never seen the undirector's cut of Close Encounters. It was just a movie yeah. that my parents didn't. They brought me to tons of inappropriate films for children because they just wanted to see it and we you know babysitters were expensive um so i saw tons of stuff that was not age appropriate for me oddly enough my parents not big sci-fi fans so a lot of the sci-fi stuff um yeah the the only exception to that is blade runner because probably because of harrison ford not because of the sci-fi angle or whatever but yeah that that they took us to see right um but anyway, uh, so anyway, my, the, the, then on the movie club podcast, uh, from about a year ago, we did pick up on South street, um, a movie that I just flat out, like, it was like a, where, why have you not been in my life before? Right. Why, why don't like, people mention that? Like, it's my it, favorite some Sam movies... Fuller film. Like without it, a doubt, it's my oh, number same. one Sam Fuller movie. So, I, it's, it's like, why isn't this, why isn't this mentioned as much as Casablanca? Why? <laughs> Why all the out of all the film history books I read, they never mentioned Pick Up on South Street, but they always mentioned Maltese Falcon. Like well, you know, like it's one of those things. In all fairness, the Maltese Falcon is my favorite film of all time. Oh really? And Pick Up on South Street is like up there. You know what I mean? Like and sure. I, well, I, I could have picked a better example then, but yeah. it, it's sort of the thing where it's it's just like this is clearly just a, a superlative effort in Absolutely. every aspect. And I think to a certain film lover. We're not saying anything new. It's just when you think of Casablanca or the Maltese Falcon or even the treasure of Sierra Madre, if we just want to stay on the Bogart theme, those films feel like they've percolated into popular culture in some capacity, whether it's a famous line from the film or a shot or something. Um, Whereas, and and there are some really great lines in, uh, in pickup and yet it, 
it never made the grade. And part of the reason, the fact is, even when Fuller's working with studio budgets, his films are pretty small. Um, yeah. And Casablanca is a big studio film. It is a it's a huge studio film. It's true. Money um, money is 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 always an issue even with the legacy. You would you would think once the movies are said and done, money wouldn't matter anymore now that no one's marketing them, but it it does. does yeah. Leave leave so much to so, the legacy. To further then so when we when you decided uh, we can't find anyone to talk about Sam Fuller. Let's just tap Half Yard and see if yeah. he, whatever. And I'm like, well, sure, I, because I I know already like Pick Up and and Big Red One like the back of my hand. So I feel, but then I really went and I collected. Uh, so I watched Naked Kiss, Shock Corridor, Pick Up, Park Row, White Dog, Crimson Kanono, Steel Helmet, China Gate. <laughs> And even the 1990s documentary by Tim Robbins or or narrated by Tim Robbins uh, with Quentin Tarantino and Jim Jarmusch and whatever talking about Sam Fuller. So I watched a lot of Sam Fuller. Oh, and wow. Even if this podcast is an absolute disaster that the internet chews up and never airs and no one's ever listened to it, it is a rare gift to watch <laughs> those many films in a week and a half block right like because yeah. i just went a lot of sam fuller stuff's on youtube so you have instant access to it um and then i had bought a lot of fuller films and just had not got like i bought white dog like three mm-hmm. years ago and never got around to watching it so this was the you know, i actually own a ton of fuller films that i don't watch very often and and this but yeah i also had to find a bootleg of park row um and I think my bootleg was better than your bootleg. That movie is friggin' fantastic. It's great. Um, it's you know you know the thing you, you talk about like how tr- uh, Treasure Sierra Madre and Casablanca and 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 Maltese Falcon have trickled out and like the influences are clearly there. And when you watch something like Pick Up on South Street, like there's a there's a certain level of everyone. Everyone is a criminal, and everyone is there's no good guy. There's no traditional sense of good guys. That sort of is like okay. I can see how Tarantino was influenced by Samuel Fuller. I can see oh, how there's no doubt <laughs> there. Yeah. You know, Scorsese was influenced. You know, you watch Underworld USA. You're like, oh, fucking Scorsese. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, but, for that uh, matter, isn't isn't uh, uh, what's the what was the movie Shutter Island? Isn't kind of that his amped up Shock Corridor in a roundabout? Yeah, I, I thought that was Shutter Island was was halfway between Samuel Fuller and uh, and uh, Val Luton. Was, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, was the thing I, yeah. I still haven't seen Sh- uh, Shutter Island stupidly, but um, it's but good. when I saw it's really good. When I saw Park Row, and that was the only Sam Fuller movie I saw. The thing I thought about was was um, oh fuck, what's his name? <laughs> what's his name? Uh, he did The West Wing. Aaron oh, Sorkin, yeah. Aaron Sorkin must yeah. watch Park Row yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> Because well, it is such a, and this is what it means. See, and and we're gonna do yeah, this, like, and we're gonna do that. It, and, like it has the long takes, it has the yep. the snappy one liners, it has the fast dialogue, it has the earnest plea that like the newspaperman's job well, is the most well, important job in the whole world. If there wasn't newspaper, there wouldn't be a Statue of Liberty. <laughs> exactly. Well, I actually, that's what I love about Park Row. It's a movie you could not make now because it is so bloody earnest. But yeah. I, and, I think, all, and even, even the fact that the, that the villain is just like a dumb woman <laughs> feels like a, but a damn sexy, dumb woman. Sure. Um, sure. But uh, who learns her lesson, which is kind of pretty sexist. Um, But 
the I feel that he's got Fuller's got a few different modes. Like he's got his his crime mode, right? The pick up on South Street kind of thing. He's yeah. got his uh almost like a a hubris mode. Like yeah, where, where characters are punished, like Shock Corridor, like this writer is going to go in and get this story and and yeah. whatever, and he's kind of punished for that. Crimson Kimono, of... Crimson Kimono is a little bit like that yeah, too. Exactly. I, actually, my least favorite Fuller is Crimson Kimono, even though really? it, even though it's gorgeous and it's beautifully shot, it's actually one of the best shot Fuller films. Framing the the the, the Mizen scene, if you want to get all film nerdy, is astounding. But I found the story to be just. Particularly the the procedural part of the story to be fly like the the, the the love triangle's fine, but the procedural story, which I feel Fuller is really good at explaining something to the audience, yeah, yeah. it almost like too blunt. And then and the then thing, the got- crazy the crazy thing about Crimson Kimono is that when I'm watching it, I'm like, all right, it's an issue movie. Yeah. It's about yeah. ra- interracial relationships in, and but it's an issue movie from the '50s, so it's not going to age well. But the crazy thing about Crimson Kimono is not only is it super modern in that everyone involved is like, look, no, it's fine. You can like her. Like no one, there's no fucking crazy racist white character who's like, right. get that jap away from our white women. Like there's no character like that. The the, the... You want to know the tension I had when watching um, that movie was what? will the studio let the main character kiss the yeah. white woman? Like that was my that was my that was... Like, edge of my seat moment. Are we gonna <laughs> put up the that's, end? That's the, meta, that's the meta narrative when <laughs> you're a modern when you're a meta audience watch is like oh man is that Japanese and, guy and gonna so get? When is they he gonna finally kiss when they get the big yeah. sweeping like dolly in like the Scorsese shot kiss yeah. at the end I'm like whew because the, if there's one thing that Sam Fuller isn't and that's what makes him the most modern filmmaker is that he's not racist no he no he's the most non-racist filmmaker of his era race is constantly an element in his movies like shit in the in china gate um the black guy lives he's the one guy who lives um and and he has huge scenes like nat ken cole huge scenes in that movie he's got the best scenes in the film well so the thing about crimson kimono is it gets torpedoed by how modern it is because yeah. it could have been a really good, solid melodrama. Like, you like know, it could have, kind yeah, of it thing. could have been a Douglas Sirk kind of a thing, but, but instead it turns into a really minor drama about this guy sort of dealing with his dual identity as being Japanese and being American. And it's the most, and it's like, this is the kind of story that indie movies are made about in 2014. This is the right. kind of, right. you know, right. And, and this and like, but because it's so small, and even at one point the the female lead, she's like, "I can do this without all the melodrama." I was like yelling at the screen. I'm like, "No, you need melodrama. That's what's <laughs> gonna make this movie interesting." Yeah, the movie because is the like procedural, the crime element is so lame in that movie, and it, yeah, it because... kind of breaks the movie for me. I I kind of yeah. I, I know you always want the movie to be about more than just the going through the genre motions. Yeah, but you can't abandon the genre either. You kind of got to actually write a good crime story, which I don't feel Crimson Komodo is. No, it, it's re- it's really isn't. Um, but pick up on South Street fucking yeah, okay. isn't. Let's, let's and you want to talk about up, yeah. you want to talk about modern uh, filmmakers. The opening of pick up on South Street where he is picking her purse. He is, you know, he's he's stealing, you know, he's yeah. robbing her from her purse. It's the most pornographic thing I've ever seen yeah. in a in a straight movie. 
like the the way that the purse opens up and the way his fingers are digging inside it is so fucking sexual i can't believe that any censors allowed him to get it like there's nothing actually well, no, sexual. that's the beauty of it it, it defies Boy, censorship on. because it's like we're not showing any sex it's just but, but you know but you know they that was you know that's sort of the birth of double entendre is the idea that it's like okay the haze code we got to get around that and yep. then that's sort of but like I've never, but that is the most blunt. Like I've never seen anything like that's actually literally a, a man plunging his fingers you know, into a vaginal you know, object. You know what's even better though? Double what's entendre. even better about that is that it happens in public. Oh yeah, <laughs> like and it, it just, happens like, on a just, crowded train. Oh god, they're just staring at each other and everyone's surround. Oh my god! So like the movie already from the opening it, has the has craziest, yeah. like dirty kind of energy to it. Well, um, and. and I asked this when we recorded on the Movie Club podcast, and I'll ask it again because I watched it five freaking times. And I so it's silent the opening chapter, right? The whole sequence is silent, no dialogue. And they get off the train, and the two like FBI guys that are tracking her say something to each other, and I still don't know. The first line of dialogue in that movie, I still don't know what it is. I've seen the movie, like, seven times, and I've watched the scene <laughs> ten times, and I still don't know what the first... The uh, first line of dialogue! If we, if we can take another quick detour, one of the, the crazy things about Samuel Fuller is, like, his camera, like, for a lo- the low-budget movies he's made, and make and even in the, even in the, you know, as a modern viewer, you're kind of used to what low-budget means in modern times, you know, what mid-budget means, what high-budget, you know, big-budget means. But, like, even in the 50s, you can tell these are low-budget. There, there are little moments where it's like, oh, man, Samuel Fuller did not have time to set up a close-up, so he just fucking blew up the shot and zoomed in on a character's face so suddenly yes. for three oh, seconds where, of a shot it gets really super grainy. grainy. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are moments, and the same with the... I tried watching 40 Guns, the... Because uh, recently I watched... Um, what did I watch recently? Uh, recently, I saw The Furies. Recently being that I saw The Furies this year. And from then on, I was like, all right, any any Western Barbara Stanwyck is in, I want to see. I tried watching 40 Guns, and it didn't have subtitles, and I could not make out the dialogue <laughs> at all. And I wonder if part of the low budget was just his sound recording. That it just wasn't as good. On. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not a problem in the rest of the film. Um, it's just a problem <laughs> in that one yeah. one line which is weird because most films kind of the first line of dialogue is kind of important like you right you know what i mean like in the middle of the film if something slides by that's fine but this is weird and and wacky and whatever i don't know if criterion who who do like sam fuller and have put out a lot of his films out on blu-ray i don't have the the criterion version of of the movie and maybe that they've cleaned yeah it i up watched a bit. i watched the uh, I, I rented I, I actually still I I actually still go to video stores and rent movies. Um, I rented I rented Pick Up on South Street the Criterion version, um, so I watched it with subtitles. Oh, but maybe I, I, I should can't. Turn, re- I never even thought to turn the subtitles on. Yeah, that would I, finally solve my problem. Exactly. I've, I never even thought to do that. I have I have hearing problems. I watch all movies oh, okay. with subtitles unless I've seen them a bunch of times. Um, but so you know, Pick Up on South Street it starts with this dirty energy, and you're sort of in this. Uh, it doesn't really – at no point in the first like 15 minutes even do you know who the main character is because you have this woman who – she's been violent. You know, she's She's been robbed. So is she the main character because she's the victim or is he the main character because he's the one who did the robbing but then or it goes away from mole. him? 
And then there's the cops, but the cop yeah. is like he re- like he has a dirty past where he just beats up on suspects and Tiger, stuff. And great, one of the best cop names ever, Captain Dan Captain Tiger. Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> and so Mo, is- the and Mo, the 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 uh, the stoolie, the 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 street woman, um, who's oh, Mo is. Uh, Thelma, Thelma Ritter in general she's, she's got my actress. that's my favorite it's weird because I feel that the the cinema of Sam Fuller primarily it doesn't matter whether it's the western the war movie the newspaper movie or the crime movie because God knows he makes in many genres or even the racist dog movie the movie's about surviving the movie's yeah. about survivors and Thelma Ritter in Pick Up on South Street is the one, I mean, her character is a survivor, but the way she gives up in the movie is at odds with every other Sam Fuller character ever written. And yet I find her the most memorable Sam Fuller character, period. My well, favorite I mean, performance. I When I was watching, I'm like, I know her. Who's her? And she's just one of those actresses. It's like, oh yeah, she's in Rear Window. She is, she has the famous part in Miracle on 34th Street where she's yeah. like, Sending out, sending outside of Macy's. I don't get it, right? Yeah, that was yeah. She was uncredited for that role. In fact, Um, so she's so great. And but the thing about that, her giving up at the end, and we're jumping around. We're you know we're obviously turning around the story, but but like, um, it there's a sense of honor to her where no one gets mad when she rats them out because they're like, well, that's just we know what her code is. Code of the street. We know what. We know what Moe's code is, and we know Moe Mo will sell people out for she's a certain amount. And <laughs> you know what? But she's, but she's not going – and you know, but, she, but she still has a certain you – know, it's not that she'll sell anyone out for a dollar. She has a plan. She, she is so concerned with how she is thought that like her main goal in life – she's not saving up to get a house. She's not saving up to buy a car. She's not saving, saving up to go on up vacation. A burial. She's, She's saving up so she can have a nice gravestone in the nice graveyard. Right. <laughs> like, it's just crazy, yeah. It's, it's just one so of those things where it's like... So set up to die. She's already on. the most... Yeah. But she's so fatalistic already, and she's already so... And the fact that she gives that up by not giving in to that, to the villain. Um, and I couldn't tell, because this movie has a weird double... I couldn't tell what the politics of this movie is, because on the one hand... You have the main character, um, you know. You have the main character, Richard Widmark, and he has the amazing line where Tiger is like, "You know what treason is?" <laughs> and his you, line is, "You, you re- waving the flag at me." <laughs> yeah, his response is, "Who cares? Yeah. Who cares what treason? Like, are you right. kidding me? Like anything? The Cold War is outside of my world, buddy. Like right. my world is this are the streets, and here these are the corners, and here are the blocks, and these that's my world." All that stuff happening outside, that doesn't matter to me. Like, are you waving the flag at me right yeah, now? Like, I love that, that line. Love it. That's such a great – like, that's such a fucking just great well, an, but there's all-time one anti-authority moment. There's one thing – and Widmark is astounding in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, but just because he's a fucking asshole. But yeah. the, the one thing about this – about Sam Fuller in general is he's not racist. No. Um – He's not any more sexist than the time is. I feel that he's pretty good with a lot of his protagonists are women. In I mean, we're we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about Naked Kiss yeah. later, and Naked Which Kiss is, is a movie that is sort of defined by like 
keeping it in the context of 1964, you're like, oh, this is really progressive for then. But then you watch it now and you're like, yeah. it's not necessarily progressive but for The one thing that Sam Fuller hates, the one thing where he's unequivocal in his bias is communism. Yeah. Like that, that ain't going to stand. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter Japanese, Chinese, whoever can date whoever, anyone can do whatever they want to do. But don't be a communist because and that's where when the, the, the best scene, the best scene in the in, in this film and there's so many great scenes. But the best scene is Thelma Ritter's death scene where the sweaty guy, the boyfriend of the main of the woman uh, that gets her purse picked at the beginning, who's a great kind of icky, oily disgusting villain uh comes over and she's given up richard widmark's character to pretty much everyone at this point and she's like but not to you and he's like well why (laughs) why you've given you'd sell it for fucking buttons the actor sells that buttons line like unbelievable but and she's like yeah but i don't like communists and and he's like "But, but why i don't know I just don't like him. I love, I love that. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's like, such a she funny... doesn't even know. She just knows that she doesn't like him. It's it, yeah. It's one of the if you want, you want to talk about how movies age, like of all the ways this movie's super modern, how sexual it is, and 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 how amoral it is, and everything. Like so, some of the fascinating ways that movies age is they just reflect the politics of the times, and the sort of anti-communist sentiment in this movie is very nineteen fifty. <laughs> But 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 you also made a very good point that the movie's interesting that despite how anti-communist it is and the way it all washes out in the end, Richard Widmark's character, who I suppose if you boil everything down, is the main character in the movie. I would say. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he is a he is the hero, but he's definitely the protagonist. I would say he is a political most of the time. I, I, I really do think that. Even at the end, his motivations aren't political. No. It's a, how do I, I've got this axe hanging over my head because I guess the three strikes thing was around in the 1950s in some form. So if he's arrested for anything and convicted, he's going away for a long time. And he's really playing everybody um, in his way. (laughs) I, I just... He's a great character. He he's truly good at what he does, even though he's in a hard place. Um, and what I love about this movie—it sounds like a weird thing to love—is that Fuller has enough respect for the women in the film that he will allow Widmark to just like the way he pours a beer on her is just fucking nasty. Oh, I was just I was gonna ask nasty. you: have, have you seen Joseph Losey's The Prowler? Yes. So I was going to ask you, who is the biggest 1950s asshole protagonist? Is it the main character, Van Heflin, uh, in The Prowler? Uh, or is it <laughs> is it Richard Widmark in uh, Pick Up on South Street? Because they are two just utterly despicable human beings um, in, in both of their movies. And, and the movie is just like, well, they're the people you're following. Yeah. And- but so deal with it, which is they, obviously more common now than it was in nineteen in the fifties. They get the fact that Widmark does have immediate sex appeal. Like I do buy the the weird attraction that the main woman, I can't even remember her name, um 
has to Widmark. There's a lightning attraction. And and I feel that the final line in the movie when Tiger said, well, you guys will be in trouble in about 40 minutes from leaving this <laughs> office. Like, it's not going to work. I believe that that's true. I believe that there's... I do believe that the main female protagonist in this movie is acting purely on lust. And I, think, I believe I, that she has a downward spiral of lusting after poor men. So the one, yeah, the one thing about the Sammy Fuller's movies is the women in his movies, they're usually either older and sexless, you know, like Thelma Ritter in this, or they are sort of helpless and sexy, like Gene uh, Peters playing Candy in this. And she is... I think I think just the oh, way she's her depicted. Candy? Her name is Candy. I, I, I feel that in every Sam Fuller movie, the boys are named Griff and the <laughs> gals are named Candy because <laughs> because there got to be about six different Griffs. Um, the the police chief in the Naked Kiss, the big red one. Uh, um, was it Luke Skywalker's name Griff? Um, and the the whorehouse lady in Naked Kiss is named Candy. Yeah, um, and she's I, named Candy. And yeah, so I, it doesn't surprise me at all that her name is Candy. Yeah, um, so I, I think she is just sort of attracted to powerful men telling her what to do, which is why she's sort of even with if the they communist. punch her in the face and pour beer on her, <laughs> which is which is again. Not a progressive depiction of, of women by any stretch of the imagination. But, it's but it's you like have the to, one on area of level, Fuller. Like uh, Tony Scott's True Romance when James Gandolfini and Patricia Arquette have like a full fist and broken glass fight in the motel room. There is a fist fight between oily communist bad guy and Candy in this movie that is a vicious it's like one take and he's putting her through oh my god phone stands yeah and, that's that scene and, oh my goodness does she take a freaking beating in well, this forget, movie i mean let alone her the room takes a beating, the room like takes every, a beating. every piece of furniture yet, is broken by the end and of yet, it like people in sam fuller movies with the exception of thelma ritter she's a survivor she's beaten to hell and she's still like well you know what I'm going to pick myself up. The Sam Fuller is the, I I think the worst American cliche, the, the, the worst thing about the American dream that as a Canadian or European, you just roll your eyes when you hear, and we picked ourselves up by our bootstraps. Sam Fuller feels like the only guy that honestly depicts that sentiment. Like when I see that in a Sam Fuller movie, I do not roll my eyes. When she, when Candy picks herself up and says, "I've thrown my lot in with, um, with this cannon, um, this this two bit pit pocket," I fucking believe it. I truly believe it, and I can't think of any other films that I believe that. And I give Fuller full credit for his bluntness, his really like over simplification sometimes of things i buy it in a in a in a storytelling medium i buy fuller's you know chutzpah or whatever well, the, it is. The, i mean the main thing i i see like tarantino taking away from sam fuller is that it's not just about great dialogue like pulp fiction what the characters say is you know i'm and i, I was it was it was fun to follow 
the last episode we did was Tarantino. It was fun to follow that with Sam Fuller and see so many of the same things that appear. Like, it's not just about someone having a good one-liner. It's about what these lines of dialogue say about the characters, and it's about deft kind of characterization through these really this really great dialogue. And, like, I, I think that is just one of Samuel Fuller's. Like, even in the movies I don't like, you know, even in some of the least of them, you know, uh, even in Crimson Kimono, like, it's not that everyone talks the same way. It's that they all are defined by the same way, which is the way they talk, <laughs> you know, which is a, it's just a very different thing. Um, so it's 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 really great uh, that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's Candy or whether it's Mo or the, it's Skip, just like you really buy them as people, even in a brief like this is an 80 minute movie. It's a it's, it's a tight. It's a it's a B it's a it's a B movie it's a B genre movie it's not it's not high budget it's not it's not high emotion it's not trying it like this is the kind of movie that a studio when they make at when they ask someone to make it they're planning on putting it on the back end of a double feature yes absolutely and but in the in the in that context he's able to create very real characters with very real. Uh, sort of emotional lives and that is an extremely hard thing to do and that's the third thing that's what Quentin Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and like that's that's what Scorsese can do but that's what few people can do because it's because it's all about just do you know what treason is who cares like (laughs) that is all you fucking need to know like that's not just a funny response there are there's there's other things I, I I get what you're saying completely on this, but there's the other side of things that I love is like okay I I can picture Fuller saying this okay we only have money to build the bait shop that's our set <laughs> so we are going to maximize that set characters walk in and around there's a point where he like swings around to escape things his fridge. Which is the best movie fridge in the history of movie fridges? Yeah. Where he's he's hiding his stash while he plunges it into the into the drink, and him sitting on his hammock. They light it with lamps. They blow candles out. It's dark. It's like like they, it's not. You don't even know when you're watching Pick Up on South Street how much time is spent in that South Street like bait shop. But yeah. but it's it's freaking wonderful. Same with the subway set. Like clearly that's a stage set. Like they have some footage of some subway. But yeah, you know the set. But they maximize that. Like I, I the, the climax of the movie just happens to take place in the same place as the beginning of the absolutely. movie. You know, and it's and enough time has passed that it doesn't it doesn't occur. Like it didn't occur to me until just now. Oh yeah, that's probably the exact same set. Same set. They filmed there. Yeah. There you go. They filmed this and that. And then the and then the other set is the. Um, uh, the other set is, uh, well, there's Moe's apartment and, and the police station. Um, but yeah, I, and they just, I mean, really... the same thing, the same thing happens in a naked kiss where the moments you think, uh, you're going to like cut to courtroom scenes. Yeah. All of those scenes that would play in a courtroom in a in normal movie, they just play in the same jail cell. And I, I can tell you this, we'll get into naked kiss in a minute, but the scene where she's framed in shadow inside the cell and then the cop and the madam whose name's candy yeah. the cops named griff uh are standing outside the cell that is black and white mise on scene 
par excellence. That is so fucking good. There's a shot in the Crimson Komodo early on where the cops are coming to question like the the the, the whorehouse guy or the theater director guy that yeah. they were going to put this on and you've got like a cop looking at evidence, you've got another burlesque dancer who has no re- reason to be in the movie other than to cut a figure in the doorway and then you have them under a light bulb being in like that is unbelievably effective. Well, I mean, the thing about the thing about his camera work is that it's very kinetic, especially for the time. In fact, like one of the things that strikes you is, uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned earlier, like how he'll in post-production turn a medium shot into a close-up, <laughs> you know, like, and there, there are some like technical issues that are like, that, that just feel like, you know, kind of low budget, but it's clear that he wants to make the fucking movie he wants to make, and yep. he doesn't care if he doesn't have the budget for it. He doesn't. He doesn't have the right dolly. There's moments in Underworld USA where the camera whips down an aisle, and it's the shakiest thing ever. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's the least steady. Uh, it's the least steady like tracking shot you've ever seen in your life, and it's very clear that they're doing it way faster than the rig was designed to do it. And um, and the way he and the way that connect. Uh, camera can sort of open a scene. You're talking about the and opening Crimson Kimono, like the way that her dressing room is sort of shot, where it starts on one plane and then it slowly builds to another and it slowly expands. Like you tell a whole story with a single set, like the way that more people, you know, other people would use a lot of different sets to tell a story. And, and Be- the other the other thing that he does is when he's having a fist fight, he doesn't actually move the camera. Like yeah. if you look at the fight sequence in Pickup. It's those actors wailing them each other into the furniture. The camera's actually still during the fight. Um, so there's this extreme violence going on, but he's going to keep the camera very focused and very geographically sound on the fight. Now, he does break that, like in the in the, the lurid opening of... Uh, of naked kiss but that's that's the sam fuller that needs the opening hook right but normally when he's having a fist fight sam fuller is very clean and clear with what's happening there's none of this i'm going to shake the camera up just to give you a sense that bad things are happening he's very good at tracking shots and long takes and 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 so forth and i don't know if that's the norm of the 1950s like there's two shots in pickup on south street one where thelma ritter's trying to sell her ties to like anonymous men as she's mm-hmm. walking home and then another shot of her walking up the stairs the great struggle of all americans in sam fuller films is embodied in thelma ritter just walking up the stairs to her apartment um, yeah I, I there's there's something about the fight scenes in like I remember watching I remember feeling the same way uh, I think I think Samuel Fuller's fight scenes tend to be more violent but there's something about the rough and dirty nature of well, well done fight scenes like there's sometimes you watch a, a fight scene in like an old western or something and it's just very unconvincing and it's right. not very exciting but like uh, I remember the fight scene in the bar at the beginning of uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Uh, is, is like this very dirty kind of fight scene where people are falling over things and and it's rough and people's hits aren't quite connecting cuz because they're so frenzied and it's dirty and there's something about those fight scenes I mean the same same way that uh the candy is sort of just thrown across the room in that other one it it, it it's messy in a way that you that is shocking for compared to like every other part of a 50s movie in which the acting right. is you know the pre the the pre Marlon Brando acting is more you know is more mannered and the and this and that is you know you're not it's it's everything about you know watching older movies when 
uh, when you're more used to modern film is 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 more mannered and stuff and and when the fight scenes can be dirty like that or even the uh even in pick up a south street even the when he's in the dumb waiter and it's that moment where he just sort of you know he's caught and obviously the this is something that um Tarantino does a lot and a lot of crime movies have to do which is you your point of identification is whoever you know it shifts it's not the it's not the good character it's not whoever's trying to achieve something it's just whatever scene you know whoever in the scene has the most dramatic <laughs> sort of uh need that's their so the so your point of identification when the guy's in the dumbwaiter is the guy in the dumbwaiter even though he is the villain he is the communist scum who right. just beat up candy like so brutally like when you're watching that scene and they're like all right check the dumbwaiter <gasps> Like you're you're holding your breath, like oh my god, they're gonna get him, and it was though, just weird, right? Because you're like, yeah, they should probably get him. <laughs> the same thing, the same thing happens in uh, the Wachowskis movie Bound, where most of the time, even though you're rooting, that's right, you know, for, for Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon, most of the time you're like, Joe Pantoliano's about yeah. is the one about to get caught, and you're like, oh no, is he gonna get it? Like, it's funny that, that you should bring up Bound because I have such a soft spot for Joey Pants as an actor. I don't care yeah. how much of a scumbag he's playing, and he usually is playing that. I always want him to get away with it, whether he's oh, Teddy, yeah. whether he's whoever he is in the Matrix, whether he, whether whether he's the guy that shouts into the phone at Midnight Run. I always want Teddy Pants or Joey Pants to get away with it. <laughs> It's it's uh, yeah, and also Joe, speaking of the fit, like Joey Pants feels like a fifties. Uh, he does. Heavy. Like he Joey could, Pants could have been fit, in a Samuel Fuller fit. movie, no he, problem. He could have. He actually, I believe, other than the fact that he's a little scrawnier and a little oilier than Richard Widmark, he could have yeah. played the the Widmark role in this movie. I feel he could have played it well. Um, yeah. Different tone, but the other sure. thing I always like to call out when talking with Pickup on South Street, it's a little scene. But it's another scene to Sam Fuller's sense of cultural equality is when they go, uh, when sh- when the candy goes to try and find out where Mo is, and she has to go through another underworld contact, and he's in a Chinese restaurant eating his dinner, and she's paying him money, and he's using the chopsticks, and he's tucking the money into oh, his pocket. So that good. scene is so much fun. There's no reason that scene logistically needs to be in the movie, but it is so effectively great. Well, that is, I mean, that is the that's the key sort of when you're watching a really good noir or you're watching a real is the scenes that you've seen a million times where it's like, all right, like we know that the guy that they're talking to is not the the culprit. He's just another dude. Yeah. And and you know they just want to get information out of him. And you've seen this scene in a million cop movies, a million noir movies, every, every kind of movie. And, you know, any genre film is going to have a lot of these just because it's necessary for yep. exposition and stuff in the plot. And, but, like, the thing about Pickup on South Street is every one of those scenes has a game like that running. Like, when they're first talking to Mo and she's using the ties as, like, a metaphor for what she thinks of this FBI guy and what she thinks of the cop that she's used to dealing with. And, like, all like they their game, you know, in, in sketch comedy, it's uh, it's called Find the Game, which is you try to find, like, the game that your characters are playing that the audience can pick up on. And it's it it works really well in, in screenplays as well. Is if there's a sort of a running thing, you can deliver exposition, and it will go down like a you know it, it's a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. Um, and that's something that Samuel Fuller is just amazing at. It pick up on South Street. 
Yeah, every every scene of like even when they're talking about you know like the standard like the microfilms and and this and that even the scene when he goes to the when someone goes to the library don't they and they plug he plugs the microfilm into the into the thing or whatever that's such an interesting like deterrent like that's a yeah that's even such an interesting choice of where will he hide this microfilm he has it could be in any box hidden anywhere but he hides it in the library with other microfilms like that's it's such an interesting choice it's yeah this movie's really (laughs) great at that do you so you think so the one thing about this movie the one thing that was sort of like i couldn't quite determine was are we supposed to find Richard Vidmark's character as despicable as I, as a modern audience will find him is, or is part of it like just the more, the morals of the time is, you know, him slapping a woman around isn't considered like, it's obviously considered. No, he, I, I think he's completely supposed to be despicable, but the ultimate thing, the ultimate message of pickup on South street is that if there's one thing, all Americans can agree on is that <laughs> communism sucks. It doesn't matter how much of an asshole you are or whatever that everyone agrees. Like even when even and and part of the tension of Pick Up on South Street is whether Widmark, who's a jerk in every other way, and says, Don't wave the flag at me and I'm in it for myself, will he finally come around and not give in to the commies? Which he does. So I feel that's the fuller ultimate thesis of the movie is that he, so. he gets to have his cake. He gets to be the surviving guy and he gets to eat it too, which is to say, I still thought did my part to stop the commies. Yeah. The thing about it is, so again, I brought up the prowler earlier, the Joseph Losey movie. And the thing about the prowler is it's a character study about a sociopath. And this is a genre crime film in which, like a so, I don't know if he's, I don't know if I'd call Richard uh, Ridmark a, a, so, a sociopath in this, but like this is him just being a portion of it makes it harder for me to, uh, it, it, it makes it hard for me to figure out. Like, so this is intended just to be a really gross, like a, just a uncomfortable part of it. Like the same way you know Tarantino has has like just characters, like the point of none of the. You know, none of the the point of none of the characters in uh, Reservoir Dogs. The point is that they're racist and therefore they're bad. But there's just casual like slurs just being tossed around left and right <laughs> in Reservoir Dogs, and it's just sort of adding to the flavor of oh, you're now you're in a dangerous territory. And it can be hard for me to distinguish between like how much of this does Fuller believe, and how much of this is like is he actually kind of sexist despite his other progressive ways or is that ending supposed to be as like horrific as it implies i do think it is i i do think when the cop i do feel that in a way fuller in this movie i i don't know if the actor who plays the cop smokes a cigar i feel like that's fuller's clue as to who he is inside the movie who's smoking the cigar whoever Uh that's kind of to me the when you watch that's an, this, that's an interesting reading. It, when you watch this many Fuller movies back to back, you realize, like Tarantino's world, where there's certain like fast food franchises and brands and things that are not real brands, but they're brands that exist inside um, 
Fuller's World, like someone is smoking Park Row cigarettes in one of the films. I can't remember which one. And Shock Corridor is playing on the movie screen in The Naked Kiss. And there is always someone who served in Korea or World War II or in, in the Big Red One infantry. Like even at the beginning of uh, on the subway, there's a guy in a in a military uniform that has a Big Red One patch on his thing. In Naked Kiss, that sergeant dude, like, made out of, like, the dead sergeant, whose uniform is in there, of course he's got a Big Red One patch. Even if you look at Griff's, the cop in in Naked Kiss, his plaques from, he talks about he served with uh, Grant or whatever in the war, one of the plaques has a Big Red One on it. I mean, it's astounding how connected all of it's true because he it's... writes all of his films and he has his things like even to the point where he will mention the the, the german uh writer or whatever Goethe in many films hey. midnight oh, really? sonata by beethoven is that's in true that's several in several films falcono is mentioned the concentration camp in the czech republic or in czechoslovakia at the time or whatever um uh is mentioned in many films, even the line "Angel Foam," it goes down like liquid gold and comes back up in dynamite, is used in both Naked Kiss and in Park Row. I mean, oh, right. I don't, I don't remember that one. It's amazing. That's, that's how funny. many elements well, in his films are reused. It's the thing about Fuller, like you know, he he makes a western, he makes a social drama, he makes a war movie, he makes a crime movie, he makes a, a navy movie and a submarine, he makes this, he makes that. But what sort of sep- that is sort of like something that separates him from n- any number of directors at that time who just consider themselves workmen, you know, any yeah. number sort of the Howard Hawks of the of yep. the era the is that Weilers. he is they all is they all seem to exist in the same universe and like they all seem to have his stamp on it. And like, there's always a Japanese American character. Yeah, and, and, and someone will go, uh, I'm going to call you my Ichiban. You know what that means? Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the other character responds, yeah, my friend, of course I know what that means. I'm in a Samuel <laughs> Fuller movie. I know what Japanese know. phrases mean. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they're, they're like, it's not just the Griff candy thing, which is extreme. And then there'll always be people that mention copy boys. Um, oh, yeah? and I, it was astounding actually how many things in watching, um, all of these films back to back. I'm like, oh my goodness! I, I wonder. I wonder how much of that is uh, his personal experience, and how much of that is. I, I when I'm watching a movie uh, by Samuel Fuller, I'm 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 I'm, I'm thinking about uh, how much of that is his experience as a newspaper man because. Other newspaper men, you know, of the era were like uh, Billy Wilder, who has a lot of the similar yep. – he has a similar he has cynicism. He has similar, you know, uh, way with a one-liner. He has sin- similar deft characterization. Yep. Um, you know, uh, Val Luton, ha- you know, his – you know, the producer, he started off in newspapers and his work is often very um, – you know his his work. The characters are very important, and the complex characterization. Like I wonder uh, if you could get a list of all of the people of this era who to used to work in newspapers, and you could find a, a connection. And I, but but Fuller's unique in that he he started out as a copy boy and yeah. worked his way up to reporter, and then parlayed that into author, and then went to a couple wars voluntarily and then parlayed all of that into filmmaker. It's pretty fascinating. And 
you can see I now I've not watched the one gap I have in Fuller is that I've not seen any of his westerns, both his work on TV and his like you know forty guns and yeah and and you know he's got a half a dozen of westerns in one. I couldn't I could not another. finish I couldn't finish forty forty guns introduces so many characters in every scene with so many subplots. Uh, I was like 45 minutes in and I couldn't tell what the main plot of the movie was supposed to be. And it was very hard for me to watch. I'd love to go back and, you know, it's not a long movie. I could, I could get through it, but, and it might be like white dog, um, which we maybe we'll talk about later, a movie that the beginning uh, belies a strong end. Right, um, or when it comes together. The one that I've heard is his best Western is Run of the Arrow. I just never got a copy of it, so I didn't oh, yeah. get a chance to watch it. And so I said, okay, I'll just leave. And, and I never saw I shot Jesse James, his first film either. So I'm like, okay, I'll just leave the Westerns off the table for another day. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Let's move, uh, on, let's move on to the Shock Corridor. Sure. I want, I want you to tell me why you love... The shock corridor. I'm not it's, a. I'm not a big fan of shock corridors. So, oh no. Okay. So, I'm sorry shock to corridor disappoint was such you. a hard. It was a very hard movie for me because that was the one that you hear about all the time is shock right. corridor, and it. I and going in, I was expecting you know to really care about the characters and stuff like that, and then it quickly reveals. Oh, that's not really what it's about. The reality of the movie is very plays very fast and loose. Yeah. It's, with mental it's, institutions, it's clumsy. It's very clumsy. Um, the the plot of I'll fi- I'll solve this murder by talking to these crazy people, and the way I'll get information from these crazy people is the exact same every way. Which yeah, is I know that, that, that's my. We're all ten minutes where I'll be their friend, and then there'll be like twelve minutes where they give a monologue. They just become lucid for no reason. Yeah, they become lucid for no reason. They give a monologue about what's ailing them and and that monologue will vaguely reflect something that's wrong with America in the 60s. And then they'll spit out two sentences that give me a piece of the puzzle I need right. and then they'll go back crazy. And it's very tedious I, I to wanna, go through I want to come to, actually, of all people, uh, Armand White. Um, okay. Who has the best, one of the best descriptions of... Sam Fuller. He calls him a uh, venerable pulp didactic. <laughs> yeah. And I feel that this sh- um, shock corridor is the epitome. <laughs> oh my of god! That. That's, and that's my least. And to be honest, that's my least favorite thing about Samuel Fuller movies I, I is when someone agree. stops the movie to give a monologue. I completely uh, agree. And like I, I, you know, I like this. I like the Steel Helmet. That's a fun war adventure yep. movie. But there's that part at the you know towards the end where. Just two characters back to back give monologues like, "Well, being a black American in yes. nineteen you know fifty, like that's not and you it's know, not and fair." I completely but you deal agree with, it. with like I I do believe each of those scenes the the black guy in Shock Corridor who is mirrored in the Steel Helmet, um, yeah. and to some extent in China Gate as well, that they have a very valid, very progressive point to make without yeah. being schmaltzy. Um, right. And yet it's handled, particularly in Shock Corridor, um, in such a clumsy, we're just going to step out of the movie to make this point. And same right. with the same with the guy who I don't think is a very good actor at all, who does the 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 the, the South sequence. I find oh, that yeah. beyond. Te- it's the, it, maybe this comes back to David Lynch and Twin Peaks, where I feel that that's the moment. Like Twin Peaks is a great show, 
particularly the first season, but it falls apart really hard in the middle section. And I can't think that of anything that makes my point better than the hotel owner in Twin Peaks reenacting civil war battles. <laughs> so I've already biased on characters that devolve into civil war reenactments. I could say the same for season two of sure. House of Cards. Well, um, any, any, I mean, the, that form of schizophrenia yes. is just the so laziest. Ludicrous. It's, it's the ludicrous. easiest, laziest version of mental illness you can possibly depict. Which is like they think they're an historical character, and we obviously know they're not, and, and therefore to they're crazy. I, I find that. I mean, um, that's we talked about airplane earlier. That's yeah. airplane. That's he thinks he's Ethel Merman. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how I think about exactly. And I that and I feel that to a degree, all three of the witnesses, I guess. In but uh, but ultimately. As much as Fuller lets to say, oh, America, it's a fucking madhouse. Um, ultimately, the movie works far better with the dissolving Constance Towers and main character relationship. Like that, that to me is the core. Like the, in a way, like Crimson Kimono, where the actual procedural element is lazy and not particularly effective, it's. Constant Towers saying, no, 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 here are the professionalism boundaries of which you should conduct your career. And one is an honest, striving career. The other is hubris. And ultimately, the, the watching the main character swallowed up by his own hubris. And this is where I say Fuller is in this mode. It's a totally different mode from Pick Up on South Street, where he's going to punish his characters for being this hubristic. And and I, I feel that's I, I really the movie. I had I had a problem buying that too. It felt very it I mean even even accepting it as a heightened world, it felt it felt very easy just like and then this it felt similar to the when he's getting the information out of the crazy people, which is like, well here are the three scenes and the first time it's like this, and he's a little sweaty and panicked, but he's completely lucid. And the second time, he has a brief moment. And then the third, it's like a very obvious progression. It's it's maybe, to me, the least effective literalization of when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares yeah, back yeah, yeah, yeah. that I've ever, that I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so, very clumsy. Now, what saves Shock Corridor is the fact that it, it makes no bones about being as lurid as possible. Oh, my God. Everywhere. It's, your 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 Facebook image of nymphos, like nymphos, that, yeah. The, the moment where he's sequence. about to be he's about to be raped by eight women, like that's crazy. Like, but also all the lady in the radiator moments, sure. In in this movie with oh, I didn't even Towers. I didn't even connect that. To oh, that's head. that that has to be um, yeah. <laughs> like the way she literally dances on him while yeah. he's suffering, and and while the his embodiment of her is 180 degrees this is the again the the whole he's blind to everything like the, the main character in shock corridor deserves everything he got i feel way more for jack nicholson's character who uses the mental institution as a dodge to get out of his prison sentence i buy that way more and i'm i have way more empathy to that character in the milos foreman movie than yeah. I do with this guy, who from moment one is a dodge. Like, the opening scene of Shock Corridor, 
is not what it is. Like, you think it's a real scene, but they're rehearsing something. Like, that pull-away, very modern bit of filmmaking, yeah. by the way, to, to pull that, oh, this is what you thought it was, but this is what it actually is. Um, that sets the stage of, no, you should be punished for doing this. <laughs> And I feel when he finally, like when it starts raining and, and he's, he's wrecked as a human being and, and, you know, it's the end of a twilight zone episode, um, that he deserves it. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel any remorse for that. The character got to the, in fact, I feel angry at Constance Towers character. She's way better in the naked kiss than she is in this, by the way. Um, I feel bad that she even likes this guy. Like, I feel like, Oh, how low are you? For even liking this guy. Yeah, it's... This movie for me is... If this... Like, given no context for this movie, I probably would have walked away being like, whoa, that's a crazy, hilarious, weird movie where every scene is weird and different and there's always something strange going on and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come together as an actual thing, but there are so many fascinating aspects to it and just unexpectedly lurid moments and you would never expect someone to be talking about having a hair fetish in a, you know, in a movie that looks like this and from this era. And like, even the idea of a fetish is, is like crazy to talk about. And although I don't some... think it's definitely fetishes fully were everywhere. They just right They weren't dealt with publicly in the cinema. Yeah. To see it talked about in a movie like this, but, um, the, uh, but coming off of Pickup on South Street and coming off of so many other movies in which, you know, even something like The Steel Helmet, which is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, it's fully invested in its characters and your empathy towards these characters and, and stuff. Like, and Shock Corridor is very disappointing. Let's just say this. Um, and he's, he's in, he's in, he's the third kind of witness in this movie. Anytime Sam Fuller decides to make a movie with Gene Evans... That's uh-huh. a good thing. <laughs> like yeah. he's the, he's the head newspaper man in Park Row. He's the the main soldier in oh, yeah. Steel Helmet, and he's the the military guy that's been reduced to a child in Shock Corridor. Um, and my goodness, do those guys work well together? I, I, yeah, I didn't realize yeah, that guy was saying that. He's Row. a chameleon. He's a bit of a chameleon. He's, yeah, sure. He's, yeah, you don't buy him, and you don't buy it like. Looking at his newspaper man and his soldier in Steel Helmet and Park Row, they're totally different characters. And then yeah. you look at his kind of broken down, kind of pudgy um, scientist guy in in Shock Quarter. It's easy to he's like Tom Hardy. It's very difficult to understand that it's the same actor in each. Well, of yeah, his films. I mean, Park Row Physically. came out. Park Row came out like what a, a, a year after Steel Helmet. Like, it's the sort of thing where you are, like, when you watch a movie and then you see a movie from a different era when they've aged and suddenly they're way, they weigh more and they have a different personality and they have more right. gruff to them. But Park Row and Steel Helmet were a year apart. And he's skinny in the one and with the mustache and then he's, yeah. like sweaty and curly and kind of pudgy but gruff. Um, yeah. Or griff, as the case may be. Um, sure. But, uh, um, yeah, so – I don't know. There's probably smarter people that can say smarter things about Shock Quarter than me. I've seen the film three times. I feel I've given 
um, the movie is due. And I do agree with Jim Jarmusch when he says that Fuller's films have always been about America as kind of a lie. Even though Fuller loves America, he loves yeah. exposing its contradictions. And he, he's basically saying he's like a tough love on America. He's like, America, I'm telling you this. Because I want you to get better. So his newspaper man who's punished, I feel, is that way. Every time he has a black man talking about racism in America, I feel it's much richer uh, with the character in uh, Steel Helmet who's saying, I fight for America for these reasons. Um, And there's direct precedent in that. If you, oddly enough, if you look at George Takei's TED Talk from like, three weeks ago where he talks about in world war two, how all the Japanese Americans were interned, even though they were just citizens and had been citizens for many years. And yet they put a whole uh, battalion of Japanese Americans together. And they were the most decorated battalion in the entire United States in world war two for what they accomplished. And they were pulled out of concentration camps to fight for the country that put them in concentration camps that's insane and yet and i feel that particularly in the steel helmet when the black guy says this is why i fight i can't even ride the bus doesn't matter i know that america will get better if i just keep hammering away at it i feel that's what sam fuller feels about america he's like we're gonna have an intervention (laughs) sure Um, yeah and the other the other thing about sam fuller is uh about these movies and to go back to sort of how things age a movie from 1963, having a, a character, a black character sort of very earnestly and frankly talk about sort of self-hatred that came from integration and just like, it's not a matter of, well, there's segregation. And then once segregation was done, then everything was back Kyle to normal, which is the way, yep, yep. which is the way Hollywood loves to depict no. things, which is just like, it's like, well, once slavery was done, then slavery was done. And I mean, that's one of the things I loved about uh, Django Unchained is that it, it depicts slavery as like a state of mind, as an institution, not as a, a person owning another person, you know? Right. And, and like this and, you know, so to have in 1963 a, a film in which a, um, he's talking frankly just about like the stress that were, was put on him to even – do such right. a like, and that's why he's uh, this yeah. this moment that is sort of could even be depicted as like, oh, that's a victory moment. No, no, that's no. not a victory moment. That's massive that's, punishing stress. Yeah, that's and like that's so progressive yep. for 1963. You watch it 50 years later. You know, you watch it 40 years later, 50 years later. It's it's just not the same, and it's it's hard to it. it you know, you have to put yourself in the mind. But uh, when no, a big, I, I believe you can boil it down. I've, I the one thing I love about me not coming in as an expert in Sam Fuller films is that they're all right there. You don't need, you don't need to really dwell too hard to get where Fuller's coming from. I like the fact that he's blunted in your face about things, but I think that the formula for fillers, Fuller's characters are if you're an honest survivor, if, if you've been put into a hard situation and maybe you've come to a hard place, Fuller still loves you. If you're honest in your survival. Um, even if you're lying, like even if you're lying in the sense of this guy who's like taken on this white supremacist thing, you still have empathy from him. But the reporter, the main character in shock corridor does not come by his survival. Honestly, he's 
He's gaming the system. And Fuller doesn't like folks that game the system unless they're on Skid Row. Like, Widmark can do it. Ritter can do it. That's an honest gaming of the system. But what the main character in Shock Corridor is doing is completely selfish and not surviving, and he will be fucking punished mercilessly. Well, I I guess my my bigger point is a significant portion of the power of this movie when it was released, when it was made, was – that he's saying these things that were shocking at the right. time. And he was saying these things that weren't being said at the time. And that just isn't the case anymore. Um, and so watching this as a modern audience member, it just doesn't have the power that I imagine it must have had back then. Um, Fair enough. I Yeah, I guess. I still think it's shocking. I still think it's shocking to look at not the, not the Dixie character, but, but the, 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 the KKK characters, it's still, those are still potent images in 2014. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's true. It's it's just yeah, it's just not quite the same. And there's something about it's the same way. This is the same reason why I love um, the counselor, the Ridley Scott movie from a couple years ago. Is there's there's a there's something highly pleasurable in a movie that is being very obvious like it's 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 so hammering you over the head with what it's saying and i kind of like that i i I feel lars von trier is endearing to me as a filmmaker because he's so blunt about these things Uh um and i do think in a way i would love to love 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 to be i wouldn't even want to be at the table i'd want to be sitting at the bar listening to Von Trier and Fuller have a conversation about what America is. <laughs> that to <laughs> me would be pay-per-view main event television. Um, I don't think it happened. I, I know there's a kind of a moment in uh, uh, Perot Le Fou, the, the, the Godard film where he actually casts Fuller, but then he's, he, he, he plays it safe and just says, tell me what cinema is. That to me is a much safer thing than saying what America is. And sure. I would love to see, because I know Godard, I'm sure, had his thoughts on, you know, the French and Americans, even though they've bailed each other out on various points in history, they're at odds with each other still in worldview. Um, and I, I, I just like to see those things uh, come together. But I, I do think that Shock Corridor still has, it's more a didactic movie than an um, empathy movie it's it's very telling you what it is rather than making you feel what it is whereas i feel pick up on south street is the opposite right it's more subtle because of it yeah i i agree i agree um and then if you want to go into naked kiss not even sure where that movie is Naked Kiss, Naked I love it. Kiss is a is a wonderful place in between. It I is. was I was worried after it's seeing Shock the, Corridor. It's the happy Oreo center of yeah of I, Fuller. I I was very worried after Shock Corridor that that was sort of what Naked Kiss would be. Um, but Naked Kiss is kind of a really good movie. Again, it's, it's, a great it's movie. progressive for the time. But looking at it now as sexist a, is all hell. Yeah, as a as a as a as a as a feminist in the twenty first century who supports sex workers' rights and everything, it's it's very you know slut shaming and all that. But like, just uh, the way the story is told is for me the key difference is you know it, it's it's just as behind the times 
compared to now and ahead of the times when it was released as shot corridor. But the way it does it is just telling a story with a really good character and and just constructing this really fabulous melodrama. Well, and if anything, if you ever want to make the point about the three-act structure in cinema, this is a good movie to show. Act one, prostitute comes to town. Act two, prostitute becomes nurse. Act three, prostitute is called on her past. Like, it's, it's... I feel it's 90 minutes and there's an even half an hour to each story. It's like three movies, um, but they all boil into one. And uh, yeah. So um, uh, what's what's her name? Constant Towers is really amazing. It's She's it great. has it's such a great opening, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's it, just it's, it's got like, up there. In the greatest openings of all time. Because not only is it like a fist fight, a very lurid, smoky, hazy, spinning camera fist fight, but the de-herring in the middle of the fight is... There's a reason why that became the Criterion cover. It's actually gone. Like, blink and you miss it almost. But holy... That well, it's just it's such a fucking great moment of her of just like our like it's the sort of thing you would expect in a uh, you know to open a Tarantino kind of jank like if he if he made a a a female empowerment movie the way he made I guess he did (laughs) well sure Um, but like it's yeah it's just that great moment and she you know she just kicks his ass and she takes only the money she can and called him a fucking parasite and then she adjusts her she puts just her wig back on in the mirror and puts on her makeup as the credit fucking hard in a way jackie brown is kind of kissing cousins to naked kiss a little like, bit like that, that you know woman down on her luck has her past trying to figure things out like that um now jackie brown doesn't get burned in love in the same way that um, shock corridor does, but both uh have their characters entering the frame during the opening credits and exiting the frame in the same like I'm just moving on kind of way uh in this movie. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, it's... I there's one thing though I want to say in the sense that if Fuller hates communists. He also hates pimps, and it doesn't oh, matter yeah. what gender they are, because there's two pimps in this movie. Uh, one of them, of course, named Candy, um, and both of them are mercilessly punished by Constance Towers' character. Yeah, there's um. So the the thing about the Naked Kiss is that to me, the Naked Kiss is the ultimate argument against. The Shock Corridor, <laughs> actually, like to me, the Naked Kiss is the ultimate argument against being didactic as a way of exploring themes, because the Naked Kiss sets up a brilliant, like it's a plot. It's all through story and plot and characters and events, but it sets up an audience realizing that uh, that a woman can, you know, when she, once she actually gets in the jail, she's accused of murdering sort of the town benefactor. Um, who she insists and we see is a, is a pedophile, but no one believes her because he's dead and he can't. And his, and he admitted it to her right before he died. So there's no, she has no witnesses. Um, so she's in jail and you have all of the events of the movie before that, 
people talking to her, it's like all the people she pissed yeah, they off. They all come all in. The, yeah, they all come they in. They all come in to talk about why, you know, to, to go against her character. But we, because build, you know, because of the first two acts, we've seen the reasons she's done everything she's done. Like you see why no one, nothing the cops do is particularly um, unreasonable. Like it's well, all like well, her. Well, uh, well. If, if the cop, well, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, this if is not co- how you handle. Like when they bring in Buffy or Buff or whatever to talk, you do not have the madam standing right there. <laughs> you know. But it's but it's it's it's. I guess what I'm saying is like a lot of movies they can stack the deck by having characters just not believe. Like that yeah. to me is always frustrating. Like for example, I recently saw The Hitcher, and then The Hitcher, yes. it's a guy being framed for murder, and the cops just don't believe him. And it's like, well, what he's saying is reasonable. Like a reasonable person would look at the confluence of events and be like, this kid is not a murder. Like what's going on? But the cops are just like, no, we don't believe you, and it's just easy. Whereas in this, like. She the she is a prostitute who is over the town who's o- found over the town benefactor's dead body and she admits to murdering him and she says, "Well, he was a pedophile." Like their first the anyone's first response would just be denial. It right. would just be like you well, just go into a Particularly when you're the war hero buddy of right. that guy. <laughs> exactly. And but the reason that all these chips are stacked against her is because of her past yeah. that has nothing to do with this story. And it's, and, his and past. it's, it, it it's is sort of the, a tale of two pasts. Yeah. He's the philanthropist, the hospital guy, the war hero. She's and it's about the prostitute. Yep. So what it does is it dramatizes how people are judged for their past and misjudged for their past. And like, and why you shouldn't, you know, judge, judge people based on things they've done only by things they do and who they are. And, like, she makes but a it, great comment in the in in the thing though. He's like, "Man, they sure throw up statues quick around here." <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. That. That, exactly. That, that feels like an our town uh, kind of um, moment where because she had a long history with the hospital, and many people when they watch Naked Kiss go, "Well, how the hell did she go from no past, like no, she doesn't even have a last name in this movie to working." In a hospital, I feel the movie does a really reasonable job of articulating. She's not a nurse; she's a nurse's assistant. She's just yeah. basically coming in as a care worker, which in this day and age is still the one job you can get with a high school education. Um, I feel and, they really do and, a good I job mean, of that. This this coming from Samuel Fuller, who worked himself up from a page boy to absolutely a reporter to this, yep. like it's not hard to believe, like. You know, he has if, lived the story of someone coming in on an entry level position with no qualifications and then suddenly becoming sort of the one all the children are singing to and if stuff. The one thing in this movie that dates this movie is it, there's two shots and they're both egregious and they both should be cut from the film. Uh, <laughs> and because they just beat you over the head in the wrong ways. I like when Sam Fuller beats me over the head in the right ways. This mm-hmm. is the wrong way. There's a scene where she walks off the bus. She has her trunk picked up by whatever valets are there and she's walking into town and there's just an unattended baby carriage for no reason whatsoever. And she picks up the bottle and feeds the baby. It is ridiculous. And maybe I'm talking in 21st century helicopter parenting reality. Um, you know, there's two girls playing skip rope, maybe ostensibly they're in charge of looking after the baby, but then they echo the scene in the penultimate shot of the film where she goes and she puts a rattle. 
there's enough of her own actions and agency in the movie that you do not need those scenes. No, it's you don't. I, I, the, I interpreted the Clumsy. first one as being establishing what a safe small town this is, and therefore heightening no, what a disruptive presence. You don't need was it. Was like you can leave a baby carriage unattended outside the store when you outside go shopping. The bus station, yeah. <laughs> uh, outside the bus station, yeah, well, it's they, pretty great. But like, literally putting a criminal on the bus, right? Because to he me, it served in the big me, red one. You know. To me, that's like the most effective way you can sort of get a message across is by dramatizing it and having people empathize with characters. And like any and any time it's just a movie about the, a certain character suffering, that doesn't really do it because that's just an easy way to make people feel bad for someone. And anytime it's just about you know a, a character giving a speech about how hard it is for them, that's not the right way to do it. But to me, Naked Kiss is a great way. It's just a really well-structured story that is designed for 1960s audiences to empathize, feel for this prostitute. Empathize. And, That's what movies are about. Yeah. Right? And to, and to, to take her side on a court case where if probably if they saw, heard about the crime, like, you know, if they read the newspaper, like all those people doing that great montage where the, where the, every single word of, of the headline gets its, <laughs> it's own, gets its own title. Yeah. It gets its own big title um, push in. Like they would probably respond the same way, and all I love all the the town like sort of showing up. I don't know part in curiosity and part in like forgiveness and her moves. and her just moving on. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, you know it feels like a an interesting companion film. That this would be like some came running. Uh, have you seen that? No, it's a Vincent Minnelli movie with Frank Sinatra, and there's no and Frank Sinatra has a past as an alcoholic, and he's a veteran, and he's you know, bitter and he's a writer and someone, someone he met on the bus ride to his hometown is Shirley MacLaine. And she's just, it's a movie from 1958. So she's just coded as a floozy. She's just quoted as a slut. She's not expressly a prostitute, but she does go on dates with men. So they buy her dinner. You know what I mean? It's the same sort of thing. And it's just all about them two being disruptive presences to this like small town suburbia and, being torn between trying to fit in and not, and ultimately just not fitting in. Um, I talked about some came running, I think during the Vince Minnelli episode, it's really great movie. And that it made me think of it. I think some came running. It's, it's over two hours long. It has more time to let their characters breathe. It's way less arch. It's way less lurid. It's, you know, it, it it is, uh, it has better drawn characters and it, but then again, it has a way bigger budget. It's shot in Technicolor, you know, it's, and this is, but the, the Naked Kiss is such a great down and dirty version of that kind of story, even down to just like the luridness of having the word abortion in the movie. Right, like, right. Even no, if, there's even, a lot of those scenes. In, even if it's an, even if it's a sort of almost a pro-life sentiment of like you're not having yeah, that abortion. I know. Like, Here's like a just saying bucks, the word away, abortion yep. Yep. in a movie from 1964 is is groundbreaking. But, so. The sequence, the opening credit sequence of her fixing herself in the mirror, mm-hmm. like mirrors are. I mean, the movie is a lot of Sam Fuller's are like, I'm just gonna hold a mirror up to America, like that's kind of his thing. But right. in this movie, the mirrors are like textual, um, because you have the the opening credits after she's beaten him up and she's fixing her wig. Um, that's the whole credit sequence, and then later when she gets to the town, it's presumably, I think it literally is. Like two years later, it it has just a simple, like a time establishing with some dates on the screen, and 
then she looks in the mirror after sleeping with Griff and she doesn't say anything out loud. You just get the sense that she's like checking her, the corners of her eyes for wrinkles and, and not feeling great about herself. And then boom, cut to the hospital and she's working in there. You get it. It, Yeah. I I don't mind that they even explicitly says it later, but that's some pretty confident filmmaking right there. And even there's even more subtle stuff later. Like when the kid is trying to reach his toes that's like a really moving moment yeah. for her and it's very unexpected both for her that's and what she's doing the audience. Yeah, exactly. There's moments like that. And you know, and it, that's why she can be when they, when they describe her as no, she's not a Florence Nightingale. She's really firm. She, because she's, she's not sentimentalizing it. She's, no. she's living the same getting like, <laughs> it's the most ham fisted thing ever of getting back on your feet yeah. Symbolized by children there's, with no legs. It, it's a Samuel Fuller movie, so there's nothing <laughs> subtle and, and about it. It's delightful. But, and but sort of the interesting thing about the, interesting the twist of it happiness. Is, Holy yeah. moly, that scene works. It that, shouldn't that's, that's work really on good scene. any level. <laughs> that whole scene should be the schmaltziest. You just want to punch the movie in the face, and yet gangbusters that move that scene I think works. there's something I think it maybe because there's just something eerie about the song and maybe it's just the way the the, the, the musical number is child actor there's nothing cute about the way the musical number is filmed no, it's where they're singing dour, about the, dour yeah. stuff so but um but what's interesting is so she's a prostitute and she has you know emotional scars from that and that's what makes her relate to these kids and that's what makes her tough with those kids and then the opposite of her is the other nurse who is not tough enough and she sees these kids and it just gets her down and it gets her depressed and she can't so do it, handle anymore. So she's going to become a <laughs> prostitute. It's such a, so um, last night uh, there's a, a British show called a young doctor's handbook. Have you seen this? No. Okay. So it's on Netflix. It's uh, four episodes long. Uh, I thought it was a mini series, but apparently there's a second season that's not on Netflix, but at any rate, it's um, Daniel Radcliffe uh, as a Russian doctor, top of his class in the Moscow medical school or whatever, being sent off to bumblefuck Russia to help this small town. And they all have syphilis. And meanwhile, John Hamm plays older Daniel Radcliffe and he's sort of looking back on his life and, and they have conversations and it's sort of about, and you know, John Hamm, the, the pain of dealing with all these people just dying who they need operations. They have syphilis. They're dying of syphilis, but they don't. They won't have them because they can't rest. They need to keep working. Like the the pain of all of that leads him to be a morphine addict. So it's him as a morphine addict in the present tense, in like 1923 or whatever, looking back at himself in 1917 an and idealist. sort of how he got to be that. Yeah. And they have these moments where they're looking at each other, and it's just this moment of clarity where it's like, this is the moment. This is it. This is the key. This is. The, the the scene in which and it's a British show so of course it has this weird tone where it, it couples like kind of quirky humor with the most horrific violence you've ever seen on a television show so it has like a scene where Daniel Radcliffe is amputating a girl's leg with a blunt uh, saw and it's like four straight minutes of cutting to him amputating this girl's leg and it's gruesome and horror horrific and it's like this moment where older John Hamm's looking down on it and being like, yeah, that was the moment where I turned to morphine and I couldn't take it anymore. And in Naked Kiss, it had the same feeling where it's just like the way she deals with uh, the other nurse is just, it's like that. She's looking at young self and that's why she gets so fucking hard. Yeah, I buy uh, it. Completely buy it. 
And she fucking slaps her and says, you earned that, <laughs> you know? And, like, and, and then she goes and lays the boots to the madam, yeah. which is not played identically to the opening sequence, but the way she shoves the money back in her mouth of like, yeah. I'm not taking any of your dirty money. I'm going to dump it on your bruised body or in this yeah. case, right in your mouth. That's very evocative of the first sequence. And, it, and as progressive as this movie, you know, was then and doesn't feel yeah, now as progressive I, as a movie can be with a character named hat rack. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but as, as looking, you know, looking at it as a modern feminist and seeing all the whatever problematic aspects of it, it is so satisfying to see a former prostitute just kick the shit out of two pimps within 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, absolutely. Both with, of those are earned and, not, and uh, none of the violence is returned to her. Like, that's so good. That's right. Um, <laughs> but they both have their kind of, psychological scene while she's in prison they both come back into lord like i i couldn't understand why the why the big city pimp would stick his neck out just to rub it in on one of many of his girls that got away like it's just the movie being sam fuller sure <laughs> i sure. mean that's not realistic in that you sense have to, you, you gotta give some license it's this weird thing where you do get invested in in characters but you do there is just the distancing aspect of everything's going to be heightened and nothing's going to be subtle and um, the, the last aspect Oh, go ahead. The children, the children singing is going to be on. Is going to be a tape of the children singing is going to be playing while he's molesting a child. Like, right. um, but the, the, there's there's something about that that's key. Not only there are they all have their pirate costumes on while they're singing, or for most of the movie, the kids. And there's that whole sequence where she's reading the story, and just given that sort of classic American optimism, you know, if you just believe hard enough, if you wish hard enough, it'll be true, and that's what she's doing with Grant. And it turns out horrible. <laughs> like that's the fuller, the realist fuller saying, you know what? Maybe that blind optimism isn't best for everybody because, you know, she like the whole way they play the Venice footage with the dream sequence kind of feel. That's her running with the children fantasy. And it just goes down so south. When he comes to with her and he's like, yeah, the main reason I'm with you is because I can't be with a normal. You know, I may happen to love you, but you are already in a very subset, you know, yeah. for me. That's just horrifying for anyone to hear. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's soul crushing. And uh, of all the of all the horrible words directed towards her because she's a prostitute, like that is the worst, and that's and that's a guy moment. Where the guy is like, "Oh, I'm empathizing with you." Yeah, <laughs> like, and no, he's you're... like, "Oh no, you're not." It's a great yeah. scene. Like it's a powerful moment, and it's perfectly in tune with her character and everything. Um, but it is that ooh, this got icky. Look, as if pedophilia is not icky enough. Right, His justification for their future is based on the fact that he equates her lifestyle, which wasn't entirely by choice, with his lifestyle, which may also not be entirely by choice, but they're different worlds, and he's equated yeah. them in the worst possible way. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a really horrific moment, and th that whole sequence is dazzlingly shot. Like, that is... Yep. It is... The, it's all close-ups and just hints of... Of you know the phone coming down and and the veil of her the of the veil of the fucking wedding him. dress she was gonna have and to marry him going over his up. face and it's all, all very that. coded yes it's really great um, and that's I mean, all kind of the syntax so of this, good. 
that's the syntax of this movie though. When she's out of her mind because shit just got real, that's when they give those crazy no background crazy close-ups. Um yeah. and I must say the casting of this movie is interesting. Um I like the the look of the Mac character, the head nurse in the hospital. Uh I really like the weird plastic surgery look of the actor that plays Grant. Like mm-hmm. he's there's something wrong with him physically. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the other thing I'm gonna say. There's nothing to imply his pedophilia beforehand. But the moment but, it comes out you're like But the ah. moment it comes up I'm like Oh yeah, there is something fucking wrong with that guy. Like, it's like he's wearing cellophane on his face or something. Yeah. And there's something about I feel the same way in Shock Corridor as Naked Kiss. There's something really severe about um Constance Towers look. Like I buy her in both of those roles because she's not the naive pretty girl. She she has a she's got an icy blonde feel to her, but she also has this severity. And if you look at Constant Towers now, I mean she's I don't know done like twenty years on General Hospital or something. Uh, at this point, she's aged into the brilliant Maggie Smith kind of look. She's a gorgeous oh, yeah. matronly um, woman now. I I think she's one of those like almost. It sounds horrible to say this, but older than her years, and I don't mean that she's not physically beautiful because she is, but she has a like a severity that someone like um, uh, a Jennifer Connelly or um, no, I'm just grasping at, uh, at, at at actresses um, that, that that they don't have. You know, yeah. what I mean? a more angular kind of look. I agree, um, which makes her. An okay choice for Shock Corridor, but a perfect choice for Naked Kiss. Yeah. And she gets all the acting. Like, she gets all the... She has a lot of moments where she could break the movie if she wasn't perfect. And she never stumbles once. Even when they give her a clunky scene, like talking to the military uniform, she she doesn't get crushed by it. No, that's true. It's... It, and again, it's... It's the it's a story that you know, I, I like the idea. I mean, it's a it's a pretty common pulpy story of like an innocent town and then sort of a disruptive element coming in and revealing so much about all the characters. But Blue that, Velvet, Blue Velvet certainly. <laughs> I mean, uh, Otto Preminger did Fallen Angel, and that's sort of about a guy who wanders into town on a bus. Uh, some came roaming. Also, a guy wandering in on a bus. It always comes in on a bus because yep. that's sort of the cheap and uh, disreputable way to travel somewhere. Yep. It's yep. it. I think a bus almost uh, cinematically implies like aimlessness. Yep. Like, Oh, the stop is as good as any, well, you know, the, the train is actually the, the hopping, the train that they live oh, yeah. opening is the one rung lower than that. But yeah, I agree. So, um, Oh, or I guess I guess you could talk about Kirk Douglas and Ace in the Hole, where his car's oh, being towed car. yeah. into town. What are you exactly? One of the great openings. So these are so these kinds of movies about these disruptive characters. You know, were not are not uh, you know rare even back in 1964. But the thing about thing about this is it having empathy. It not being about like a sociopath. It being about a character who's disruptive without wanting to be and. 
having you know empathy for her and it being a female character is a really cool sort of flip um you know where it, it it's often like a man taking advantage of the women there and taking advantage of the of the yokels and everything this is the this is the opposite where it's someone being and taking advantage by the yokel this is more a dogville yeah. story or or uh, yeah um the, and and it fully is in line with the Sam Fuller code because Constant Towers wants to get better wants to be the survivor is still punished and still surviving that's why the little girl is playing outside her prison cell and she gets yeah. vindicated because if she was in there for some in some sort of personal hubristic sense then she would be punished like shock corridor but that's not the case here so um yeah is, is there um okay so one thing i want to ask real quick because you saw big red one you've seen white dog um are what is samuel fuller's i i saw white dog the first 20 minutes of white dog and you should really like, watch white dog is excellent sure I'll, i'm i i still have it on my uh computer i'll i'll, I'll give it a shot but the first 20 minutes look like a TV movie to me. Does Samuel Fuller, his movie shot in color, do they have the same sort of look as his black and white or they look drastically different or? Well, I feel like, I mean, it, it was hugely shocking to me to be watching Shock Corridor and Naked Kiss and Pick Up on South Street and Park Row and then to watch China Gate because <laughs> oh, China yeah. Gate's like 2.35 to 1. <laughs> like oh, okay. Widescreen and... I mean, there's an there's the opening shot of one of the opening shots of China Gate um, is uh, like using the widescreen to pan up um, the main actress's legs. Like, I mean, when they say snakes and trains are the only good uses for widescreen, they should also say gams because that <laughs> shot is intensely amazing. Um, but anyway, that was shocking to see it in widescreen. But then I'm thinking, well, what the hell? I started with. The with, Big Red One. The Big Red One, which is a huge budget movie for him. Um, and it's widescreen and it's big, big set pieces and they've got real tanks driving around. And you're not just like Shock Corridor or, or even Pick Up on South Street where you're just in rooms like a classic 40s and 50s cinema. Um, and But I feel that when you tighten Fuller's budget down, he has to get more creative. Oh yeah. Um, there's no doubt that Big Red 1 looks great and there the, the the all the stuff all the final sequence of Big Red 1 in Falcono uh where he's looking into the um he has uh Mark Hamill looking into the like uh whatever you call them like uh, incineration chambers and seeing piles of dust and whatever. Oh my god, that shot astoundingly good. There's a lot of sequences in caves in the Big Red 1 that are shot amazingly there's a whole sequence around them having to assemble this pipe so that they can send an explosive to blow up the barbed wire on the normandy landing which is amazing mm-hmm. and obviously a, a, a touchstone spielberg was undoubtedly watching the big red one when saying here's what i'm gonna do in saving private ryan um but yeah so i i and and trust me the first, while the first 20 minutes of White Dog are undeniably shitty, like in terms <laughs> of how they're filmed and everything, by the time you get to the end of White Dog, there are some amazing Sam Fuller shots. Okay. Um, and he does a really good job of, uh, although, let's be honest, White Dog, even by Fuller standards, 
White Dog is his most bombastic, blunt movie. Um, yeah. But it doesn't, like, it becomes so crazy that I love it. Um, and I don't feel the first 20 minutes do that movie justice. But when you see, and here's a great callback to Naked Kiss, one of the dog attacks uh, is on an actress in Naked Kiss when they're shooting a gondola Venetian uh, fantasy sequence, which is not unlike the moment in Naked Kiss where she's fantasizing with Grant in his on his couch about the gondola. Like, but they they show the artifice of the the rear projection screen that the film shoot is doing when the dog attacks and whatever. It's it's really neat and it's an interesting callback to another film. Uh, a lot of his films again mention Venice for one reason or another. Um, but again, the characters are punished in White Dog in the same way that um, uh, the main character in Chuck Corder is punished. Because uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the main uh, guy in uh, White Dog? Um, Paul Winfield. Um, uh-huh. He he's like the the, the dog the, the animal expert that says I'm gonna train. I can beat this dog. He even lets the dog get a couple kills out of his control without killing the dog because he's like, I don't care. I'm not killing the dog. I'm fixing the dog. We're, we're not killing it. We're not putting it down. We're fixing it. So he's the hubristic character in this that doesn't even see reason. Like at one point, the dog kills a black guy in a church and Winfield's <laughs> like, we'll just bring the dog back and continue his training and pretend that didn't happen. That's just a minor setback. Um, so anyways, when everything horrible happens at the end of white dog, it's because the characters are so full of themselves that they can fix this, um, that, that they're going to be punished. I mean, I even like the, did you get to the scene where Burl Ives comes into the film? I don't believe so. Where he's like going, there's a reason why films suck in this day and age. And he's throwing, um, syringes, at R2-D2. No, like, I don't. It used to be horses and animals, and now it's tin cans on legs. <laughs> and he's throwing darts at R2-D2. I think it's wonderful. Considering he cast Luke Skywalker in his war movie. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, but he totally repurposes Luke Skywalker. There's a great scene in the in the documentary on Sam Fuller where Quentin Tarantino is talking. And Quentin Tarantino's... Uh, whatever you call it, like talking head sequences are shot in front of the, the church mural that gets big play in white dog, which is funny. Um, but he's saying he took the hero, Luke Skywalker and made him look real horror in the face in big red Uh one when he sees the concentration camp and the killing chambers and just has to stop and deal with that. Something that Skywalker never has to obviously do in Star Wars. Like, I mean, he's always the hero and he's just like, I see the good in you and I push forward and it's very simple, right? Um, even when Ben Kenobi dies in, in Star Wars, it's, eh, it's part of the hero's journey. Whereas he looks at horror with nothing to say in the 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 Jewish death camps in, in, in this movie. So that's kind of interesting. But, um, oh no, I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, but anyway, it's 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 funny to watch Fuller rail 
against many different things. But the one thing he's very clear on is that um, racism is bad. Like that's one thread that's never not addressed in any fuller movie. And I feel that Tarantino is very on board with that. Like when Tarantino got so much shit for all the nigger words used in Pulp Fiction. Like, it's used as a fucking comma in Pulp Fiction. And he got shit. Like, how is a white guy doing this or whatever? And how did this white guy convince Samuel Jackson, you know, with the whole dead nigger storage sequence, to have this whole scene or whatever played for laughs? But I'm like, if you're not racist, you can say these words and use them as tools to say these are who these characters are and they're post-racial in my movie. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it means different things. I, I'm in Tarantino. I don't think it's fully justified in, in Tarantino's movies because his movies really aren't, uh, other than Django, they're not about race. Right. Um, well, that's what I think. They're post-racial, which I think is a major distinction. Yeah, in I a just, way, Jan does I mean, a step back. <laughs> I don't believe they're post. The problem is, I don't believe they're post. Like he thinks, maybe he thinks. You know, it, it, I don't. I don't want to get. We had this conversation last episode, so. But basically, I don't believe. Uh, I I think that he has sort of an. I think he has a problem that a lot of white guys who are very, very, very intimately familiar with black culture right. have, which is, uh, he doesn't understand the importance of sort of the distinction between being very intimately familiar with black culture and being a part of black culture. Right. And like, he just, he just feels, well, it's, you know, it's part of me. It's you part of he overcompensates. Who, is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, it's just, yeah, I think he just feels that he has a right to, because it's part of who he was growing up and cause he knows, and he has a good ear for it. And when he writes two black guys having a conversation in, in Jackie Brown, like he can playfully have one of the black guys be ignorant, but it's not, but it plays as real. It doesn't play as a white guy writing a dumb black guy, you know, like, uh, and I think, let me, me, what do you think of the open sequence with Samuel Jackson and true romance? I haven't seen true. Okay. Forget it then. So, but like, I just, I feel like he does those things because he likes to goose people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and especially back then. I mean, you have to understand, like the independent film scene. I know. Of he was, 1992 was very polite. He had something you know? to prove. He definitely had he, something to prove. Like yep. the uh, uh, this great Peter Biskin book um, about Miramax. Yeah, I've read it. Uh, down and Dirty Pictures. Yeah, Down and Dirty Pictures. Right. Like it, it talks about like how the uh, Reservoir Dogs played against sort of the new queer cinema, which is all where all of these movies that were just like you know about you know about gay people and victims and, and struggling for equal rights and sort of the sort of thing that Sundance would, you know, jerk itself off over be, you know, representing, Yeah, he made a genre film and he and said he made a genre film that's very politically incorrect and yeah. very impolite. And I think he liked goosing those kind of people. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad instinct. I just think, well, which I do think to a degree is what Fuller does in on some level as well. I mean, there's no doubt that, um, sure that, that that's a massive influence. Um, but I think Fuller makes things more explicitly about race. Like there's no – there's nothing about race inside of Reservoir Dogs, but they throw around the N-word a lot. And they throw around other slurs a lot, you know, like – Yeah, fair enough. It, it's – I mean I just – you know, I'm, I'm not saying that Tarantino is racist and that's how he gets out his race. I think that's a very facile way yeah, to yeah, view yeah, his yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying I don't it's find it – It's not the case at all, really. Yeah, I don't find it just uh, as justified as uh, some other people do. And I don't – and I mean, I'm not 
I'm certainly not on uh, you know Spike Lee's side where I, where it's just like oh Django and Chain how dare you make a movie like I think Django and Chain's a very smart movie and again I, t- I talked about that last episode but well White Dog is um, fascinating that you have like this ultra liberal actress that just thinks oh I will just shop <laughs> for a solution <laughs> i will look in the yellow pages and then she finds burl ives and and uh, paul winfield and winfield is like this is I, I this sucks that this even existed and so i'm going to deal with it by not getting rid of the problem but by beating the problem fundamental difference and that level of obsession is a negative like there's a point where um, the main character and Burl Ives and Paul Winfield are all having dinner and a cop comes in and asks for directions and the, the whole dinner is utterly deflated because like they're, it's like a tense moment, even though the cop isn't even looking for anything with them, but they know that they're so far on the wrong side of the law for what they're doing with this dog, um, which is for noble reasons in their eyes, but they know they're way out to lunch. And they're consciously aware of it. It's a great scene. And there's lots of stuff in this movie like that. And, and I think that the movie, as crazy and over the top as it is, and it undoubtedly is, like you can nitpick this movie to death. Um, I do believe it's very visceral in how it handles it. And nothing's more visceral than an angry animal baring its teeth at you. Like that's an effective image. Even if you take race out of the equation, it's an effective image. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of white dog, uh, big fan of steel helmet. Um, particularly the opening shot of steel helmet. It's kind of like shock corridor, but much better because the whole opening credits are like just the helmet. Yeah. And then the helmet pops up and you're like, Oh, they're waiting for something. And then (laughs) he crawls over the cliff and he's tied up. Like there's like three levels of. It's oh, my a, expectations it's a, it's a it's an amazing opening and, and the it way keeps going? it kind of hides it hides what the story of the movie is until a good portion into it um and, and the other thing i liked is oh there's where short round comes from yeah yeah <laughs> short round doom. i i just a, just as a weird it's it, it plays as a weird cloying emotional attempt here just as it did in temple of doom yeah like yeah and it's a it's a it's a funny thing because he starts off. I mean, he's not overly racist. I, I think he's pretty sensitive. Uh, the, the the soldier, he's just like most fuller characters. He's a survival and a realist. Uh, but there's a point where he's just casually like throwing around gook, and then he just yeah. there's a he just stops. <laughs> he just yeah. okay. I'm not tough talking tough with my buddies like a moron anymore. I'm surviving out in the wilderness with a child, and as effective in survivor as this child is, uh, why am I saying this? And, and they don't even make a big deal. It just slowly gets phased out of the movie. Very yeah, consciously, very elegantly. It, it's, it's, it's a, it's a much more subtle. Like I much prefer a movie in which this rainbow coalition of a platoon of, of, you know, you have the black guy and he's going to be a surgeon. Damn it. Yeah. And you know, you have the Japanese American and you have, um, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the middle of the country redneck guy and like something like that them just working together and solving a problem. To, it give, I think that's a better uh, way to do it than explicitly talking about it all the time. And I think I read somewhere that this was really the first war movie where the platoon in question is like a 
broken. <laughs> like everyone's kind of got an issue as opposed yeah. to we're, uh, you know, we're Green Berets and we're marching in and we're, we're getting the job done and we get to blow up the dam or whatever we're going to do. Like these are guys that are all outcasts, not even outcasts from America, but they're literal like collection of stragglers. <laughs> they aren't even right. from all from the, like the, the surgeon comes in randomly, the main guy, Gene Evans, who's awesome, uh, comes in randomly. And then the rest of the platoon have been smashed. And then their commander is immediately again for hubris is blown up. Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 the problem with uh, steel helmet, I, I wish it wasn't. So is that man, the budget is so low on that movie. Oh yeah. Like when they have to cut the stock footage because they couldn't afford equipment, so like, well, we got to have a bunch of guys charge up the side of a hill. Well, we'll just go through the archives and see if we can find something that that's, that's nearly maybe the, matches. That's maybe the worst offender of the uh, fake close-up sort of technique that Fuller would use a lot. We're just a lot of the time it just keeps – it. suddenly the film gets grainier and you know that he just blew up a medium shot yeah. to make it look like close-up. It's it, – I, I mean Steel Helmet just works because it is an adventure movie where you care about characters. It's not brilliant. It's It doesn't really have any sequences that I think are like particularly mind-boggling. But it is just a really – but it, but it cares about its characters and each one of them is likable and interesting and they work together and it, they bounce off each other in interesting ways. And that's just good. And that, that's I, I just like that about – I just like – it's a good solid sort of a genre movie. And- uh, I really – the uh, another movie that I'd sort of rank around the same place um, but is sort of the opposite. It's sort of instead of just being really solid straight down the middle, it's uh, it has some really big highs and really low lows uh, would be uh, Underworld USA. Which I've not seen. So Underworld USA is a gangster movie, but it's a revenge movie. So it's really amoral. And it's this, It's definitely the sort of thing that would inspire Martin Scorsese. Like you, Martin Scorsese, there's just moments of absolute sort of depravity where like this guy as a kid, he sees his father killed by a bunch of uh, gangsters. And then, you know, he grows up to uh, be a vagrant and then, Later, when he's in jail, he just later at one point he discovers the names of all the gangsters. And when he's in jail, he discovers that one of the gangsters now old is in a sick ward. So like he basically creates this long con where he's working in the prison hospital. And it's this long, you know, he over the course of several years, he just so he can get close enough to kill this guy in his hospital bed. And the guy is dying and he's like, please forgive me, forgive – like he, the guy is pleading for forgiveness for what he has done. He's on his deathbed and the guy's like, tell me the other guys that you worked with to kill my father and I'll forgive you. And when the gangster who's dying finally gives him the names, he just doesn't forgive him and he just fucking snuff, snuffs him out. And it's it has this sort of really harsh darkness to it. Don't they play with that a little bit in um, Gangs of New York? I haven't seen Gangs of New York. Oh, okay. Well, it's yeah. a train wreck of a movie, but and I, I believe that there's a a better version of Gangs of New York out there that Miramax destroyed. Um, right. But there's enough of the movie to take a lot of pleasure from it, and uh, the the whole DiCaprio Daniel Day Lewis relationship is very similar to what you just described there. Okay, yeah, then then this then I mean Scorsese in this on this DVD Scorsese had did a little introduction. Uh he didn't mention Gangs of New York, but it doesn't surprise me. 
but it's but it's so there's all these great sequences. The first 15 minutes are just breathless. They're be- it's just relentlessly paced and beautifully shot. And you have all these interesting characters and it's dark and it's amoral and it's beautifully shot. And then somewhere in the middle of it, it just slags and his and his revenge plot just gets really loose. And um, unfortunately, for a good portion of the movie, uh, it, it just sort of loses its momentum um, I mean, there's a there's a couple fuller fullerisms you have in in, uh, in group shots where you see all the policemen, uh, like in all the main detectives, uh, trying to figure out how to crack this uh, crime ring. Like some of the detectives are black, and that's just not mentioned. Like again, you have this sort of idea of an integrated world that may or may not have existed at the time in the right. 50s, but at, but definitely did not exist in film. In the right, 50s. right, right, right. That's Phil Fuller autocorrecting. <laughs> right, exactly, and I, I I love that part of it. And I mean, it's it has sort of a weird subplot. Again, uh, bring up some came running. It has a subplot where he falls in love with like this former call girl who works for them, who is a witness to a murder, and he's hiding, he's stashing her away um, with an old friend of his, which is who is essentially not the same actress, but is essentially Mo from uh, Pick Up on South Street. Like that kind of character. Yep. And he's sort of not sure if he can settle down with her or not because of her past. And it it gets kind of bogged down in a lot of stuff that wasn't the greatness of the first act. And it, it ends pretty strongly. It ends actually with something that I think later uh, John Cassavetes ripped off for uh, um, Killing of a Chinese, Chinese bookie, bookie where he just sort of sneaks into this uh, pool house that this guy is – that the main – you know, the main mafioso is in and he just shoots <laughs> and he just kills him right there, like without warning um, and catches him off guard. And that sort of undoes him at the end. And it has a strong ending and it's a good movie, but uh, it's unfortunately just the plotting in the middle kind of uh, prevents it from being like as good as pick up on South street. But I definitely recommend seeing it. It's a really solid, uh, really good movie. Uh, China Gate? Did you have you seen that one? I have not seen China Gate. Uh, it's another racism movie, except interestingly, two of the three main characters in China Gate are supposedly half European, half Asian. So, um, and so it's Angie Dickinson, whose whose character is actually named Lucky Legs, that has that big pan up her legs in the in the opening shot, and she has a child with an American GI uh, who's now working as a mercenary in uh vietnam during the cold war um and uh, so this is when it's french vietnam of course and uh so there's a bunch of american mercenaries doing various odd jobs and he gets hired to um blow up these caves that are holding all these russian munitions that are coming into from china to vietnam i know the movie's called china gate but it takes place in vietnam entirely um and huh. and well, because Vietnam is the gate to China, so that's the title. Uh, but anyway, the um, uh, the she's a booze runner um, with to support her son behind enemy lines, kind of thing in a really hard place, and so she has all the contacts to get kind of upriver in an apocalypse now sense to blow up this thing, and so when her her the father of her child is hired that creates a lot of friction because the father's super racist and abandoned her 
and her child because she looks mostly white even though she's half Chinese but their child looks full Chinese so he doesn't even consider it his child and blah 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 and she hates him because they abandoned him but anyway she needs the money and so that they all go upriver to blow this up and Lee Van Cleef is the baddie in this movie very young Lee Van Cleef not as young as he is in the big combo which is another great 50s noir uh, but but he's again he's half Chinese half American and he's looking to go to Russia um, and to prove himself he's running this explosives operation and they have to, to get up there and he has a romantic past with Angie Dickinson's character as well. So when she gets there, she can totally flirt with him to allow these guys to come in and blow up these caves. And uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting movie, particularly for Nat King Cole, who is one of the guys. James Hong, possibly his first film role. I mean, he's got to be like 17 in this movie. I don't know if you know James Hong, right? From... Blade Runner, Big Trouble in Little China, Chinatown. Uh, the guy's got like 180 film credits, right? Uh, he's one of the just random guy in the platoon um, who dies fairly early, but it's kind of interesting to me because I like that actor. Uh, but anyways, they all go up and they, they, they accomplish their mission. And it ends up with the boy and the racist father reconciling. So the whole mission is is to end like all of this explosives and all these people dying and whatever is to end this father's racism. It's kind of an interesting um way to tell this story, but like Fuller, not quite as didactic as the Big Red One or or as chapter-based as there was this battle, then there was this battle, then there was this battle. But there's a real piece of history that he's using as a backdrop in a way that's maybe not as obnoxious as something like Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor or whatever um, and, and is reasonable to take a, a piece of real history and graph this drama between this broken family because of race um, in front of it. And, and what is very interesting and what I said at the beginning of uh, – this podcast is that Nat King Cole is a pretty major character. I mean, arguably, I don't even know why Nat King Cole did this movie because I mean, he was hugely successful at this moment as a recording star. And this was a pretty tiny little movie. Um, but I think what attracted him to it is that he, he does do the, the song, the, the main song, which is great, but He's like one of the soldiers that gets things done, and he has amazing scenes in this movie. There's a sequence where he's being snuck up up on by the Chinese, and he steps on these, um, like this trap, and his feet are just mangled, and he just has to sit there silently with these spikes through his feet as they walk within, you know, inches of him hidden in the bush, and it's just it's the best scene in the whole film. Other than the pan up the legs. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's really amazing. Um, and uh, yeah. And they, there's a scene where there's a bunch of, um, uh, I don't know how realistic this is, but a bunch of kind of uh, like hillbilly booze smugglers that, that think uh, the French national anthem is an American pop tune. And they're playing it like a piece of dance music. Um, I mean, the French national anthem has been in cinema. I believe it's a loaded piece of music, particularly because of Casablanca. Um, Uh but it's funny to have, they make Angie Dickinson stand up and sing like it's a go-go song. 
the French national anthem, which I I don't know politically what that's saying in 1957, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, particularly because this is years before the U.S. were deeply, deeply. It wasn't until JFK that the United States started to really take over from the French in Vietnam and start, you know, you know, putting guys in. Like in this movie, the Americans are basically just soldiers of fortune. There's no American political element. You're still well, a sure, too yeah. early before the Americans became, you know, just putting, you know, CIA and everyone inside the country to destabilize it or, you know, worrying about. But there's a very real threat that communists like th- this is this movie is fuller because he's still crazy anti-communist like Lee Van Cleef, who is the commie in this movie, is just like portrayed as an absolute scumbag. Um, but there is this real element of we have to get in there and bomb those caves because communism will get a foothold. You know what I mean? Like there, already, there is the. I mean, this is. It's way, already at. It's already a uh, pro-interventionist. Absolutely, utterly, totally. And this is. I feel. I don't know that period of American history, like mid fifties, Indochine kind of French occupation, Vietnam. I don't know that era that well, and where America stood on that. But he's pretty dogmatic uh, in his. Like, there's a big. There's a big almost like you know, news on the march kind of opening to China Gate where it kind of explains the French, Chinese, Russian, Vietnamese politics of that region for a 1957 audience, yeah. um, which is interesting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a solid little movie. I Again, I don't strike it up as the most, you know, top shelf fuller, but it's really good and very so- much worth a look. It's essential, I would say. So what? So what would your let's say top three, top shelf Fuller? Be? Uh, my top three. We didn't talk about it much. Um, the middle one or the, the the other two, but my number one is Pick Up on South Street. It's it's now officially the Fuller film I've watched more than any other Fuller film, um, and it never gets old. Like that movie, it's tight. It's beautiful. It it works every time. Um, my number two is Park Row which I, I believe is just astounding in how it goes about being what it is. Like, it's kind of this weird, very professorial lesson in what the fourth estate is and, and yeah. what, you know, I mean, like, but at the same point, it spends a huge amount of time on type. As as someone, who, I have a coworker who, who has his own printing shop, his own setting, his own type printing Uh shop like old school letterpress kind of stuff oh sure and also buys and has people make linotype for him like when he wants to set something a little more elaborate um Uh so like the fact that there's a german guy in the middle of this newspaper inventing linotype (laughs) in the middle of this movie and all the scenes of the them like having the bins of type and saying oh you gotta sort this out and we gotta set it all this stuff on this on this you know old printing press that they have i love watching that stuff because I've, oh, I've done letterpress printing myself so um there's just a nerdy element in me that that loves watching and that of course in- there's the there's the samuel fuller stand-in character which is the little kid yeah <laughs> yeah I, he's like oh that little kid's gonna grow up to be at a reporter. some point i feel that that little kid should be smoking a cigar but right um but anyway the uh yeah that and the whole idea of we're gonna zoom in on uh jefferson and and 
Like, it is so bombastic. But that's what Fuller believes. Like, this is a guy going, this is, I believe in this wholeheartedly, the free press and everything that it represents. Um, Also, for such a low-budget movie, some of the tracking shots and the the locations... Oh, like cause it, for a period it's a, in the middle of that film whoa yeah, it's a period film so like those yeah. kind of tracking shots through the streets are really must have been very hard to achieve absolutely and it, yeah the movie looks great all the time and uh again gene evans oh love him and that's my favorite evans performance even more than the 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 steel helmet i i love him in this movie he's so great all those sequences where they're just in the bar talking about oh yeah what a newspaper is and oh i've got some money let's go start a paper yeah let's yeah, do it that's <laughs> the way the way that everything is instigated is really funny and the whole elaborate thing about the guy jumping off the brooklyn bridge and there's a cartoonist which is another yeah. sam fuller job uh in the movie and i'm gonna pay you 18 dollars a week and yeah. i just love i love evan's accent his cadence his delivery everything in the movie about him. All the characters are great. It, it is. It's the newspaper equivalent of let's just put on a show. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it, and it. I mean, and of course, it's still a Sam Fuller movie, so it has amazing crackling dialogue and stuff like that. Absolutely. So that's number two, and my number three is still like my entry point for uh, my my major entry point for Fuller, which is the Big Red One, um, which of course has. Uh, uh, Carradine, uh, Robert Carradine, uh, smoking the cigar. I believe he's published a novel in the Big Red One, which he sees another character reading, which is like only one word different from Fuller's own novel. <laughs> and he's smoking the cigars and the the whole bit. Um, yeah, so I, I would I would recommend the restoration version. But having watched the abridged version, it's a pretty good abridgment. Like, yes, the scenes are all better when they're they can breathe a little more, but even in the reconstruction, it still feels like we were in this theater of war and these things happened. And then we moved over to Belgium and these things happened. And then we went to Normandy and these things happened. And then we went to Czechoslovakia and these things happened. Like even the longer version has that feel of these are the soldiers that somehow miraculously saw every major battle in world war two. And sure. to tell, I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie. Um, and Lee Marvin even has, surviving world war one um you know and and whatever so cutting it to the bone more for the the theatrical release the the version that fuller doesn't like uh having watched this version and maybe my brain was just filling in oh yeah there was this scene that that's not in the movie but i know that scene so it's not a big deal to me but i don't know i think it actually my son who's 11 he saw that I was putting this on, and he's never seen a war movie before, not not in, in any real... And so he sat down and watched The Big Red One with me, and I thought that was just awesome, even though I didn't have the, the sprawling three-hour version, I had the two-hour version. I thought, oh, isn't that a great intro? I mean, some people might say, oh, the, you know, uh, The Great Escape, or The Dirty Dozen, uh, or, you know, what's the best intro war movie? But I'm like, fuck no, The Big Red One is the best intro war movie. And yeah. the fact that he just wandered in to our you know home theater room in the basement and said i'm gonna sit down and watch this movie and uh um yeah it was great it was really great so that's my number three cool uh my top three are number one pick up on south street uh number two the naked kiss and number three park row yeah so we're highly in agreement if i had a number four it's probably the naked kiss so sure um, yeah sure it's uh so um 
thanks again, Kurt, for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I wasn't sure because it'd been a we, we there were some delays and whatever. And these movies yeah. were way off in the background for me, but I think there's something beautifully pure about Fuller Cinema that even though I, some of these films have now been several weeks, you could just dive right into them. Yeah, I get, yeah. Po- apologies uh, to you and to our listeners no, for, not the, for, for the delays, it but is, uh, it is what it is. But uh, I'm glad. I was glad to have you on. I was glad to have an ex- excuse to finally dive into Samuel Fuller and and see all these uh, amazing movies. Even they're not all uh, as great as Pick Up on South Street. They are at least all very interesting. Um, even uh, even Crimson Kimono, you can't say is not an interesting absolutely. movie. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Which um, at this point, I think is my is the weakest one for me, and and that's is pretty awesome when that's your weakest one. Right. So uh, next uh, episode, me and uh, I think Jim will be coming back. We're going to be talking about Kelly Reichard. Um, that's lovely too. Although, yeah, pretty I, easy filmography. We didn't even scratch the surface. There were like half of Fuller's filmography we didn't even get into. Kelly yeah, Reichard sure. has four films. <laughs> Uh, Kelly Reichard has more. Um, Kelly Reichard has Old Joy, Winning Lucy, Meeks, Cutoff, Night Moves, Ode, and River of Grass. Oh, I was not aware. The first, the first, Old the Joy, first two I, are, but there's like ten or fifteen years or something between. Yeah, them. yeah. The the yeah. first two were made in the nineties. Yeah, so. that's right. Before Old um, Joy came along. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So I, I've only seen Meeks Cutoff, and I'm a big fan of Meeks Cutoff. Oh well, I can tell you flat out that. Uh, Meek's Cutoff is amazing, but Night Moves and Wendy and Lucy are better. <laughs> so you oh, can really? keep climbing up. Yeah, yeah. It's good. So we're going to be covering Kelly Reichard. Uh, hopefully Jim will be back. I don't know if we have a guest yet, but uh, anyway, if you guys want to contact us, you send uh, your emails right over to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you know, uh, you want to talk about Kelly Reichard, you want to talk about Samuel Fuller movies that we didn't get a chance to access. Uh, or, or talk about you're welcome to we read and respond to pretty much every email we get uh, i responded to an email we got while we were recording <laughs> so in. in real time so uh if you want to leave us a voicemail we do have a voicemail and we like to uh hear you guys voicemail um if you leave us a voicemail we'll most likely let, leave it at the end of the show uh, our number is uh 224-366-9528 so you can uh, Leave us a voicemail there. Um, I'm, of course, uh, at Patrick Rapole on Twitter. Uh, my letterbox is just Patrick Rapole, one word. And um, I run uh, Fuck Yeah Horror Movie Boyfriends still. It's, so uh, if you, if you uh, want to look at uh, photographs of uh, boyfriends in horror movies, such as Keith Wayne playing Tom in Night of the Living Dead or um, uh, you know Matthew Lillard as Stu in Scream – you know, just general good horror movie boyfriends. Your one-stop shop for well, right now eight of those photographs would be uh, fuck yeah horror movie boyfriends Um and uh, Kurt, uh, you can find me uh, if you want me in podcast form. You can find me on the row three Cinecast. Although I I pop up. Uh, hither and yon on other podcasts as well that's over at row three you can also find various uh, uh, writings there more long form stuff i tend to uh, write for twitchfilm.com and so interviews festival coverage that kind of stuff uh, can be found there so uh, and i suppose on the twitter at triflic t-r-i-f-l-i-c awesome 
All right. Well, until uh, next time, everybody, uh, enjoy uh, enjoy this episode, which you just did. Uh, go back and enjoy it again. I guess is what I'm saying. Listen to you didn't get all the details. We we went pretty fast. Me and Kurt were both pretty fast talkers. We probably referenced some movies that you forgotten the names of. Um, that was some come running, by the way. That was the movie that you wanted to remember by Vincent Minnelli to see. So um, yeah, until next time. Uh, thank you, man. Goodbye. Cheers. experience based on the second controversial novel by the author of the sensational and memorable from here to eternity this is parkman the setting for a bold panorama of adult emotions and this is dave hirsch who returned to shake loose the sins the shame the secrets of an entire town so that it would never be the same His hometown hadn't changed much in its hundred years. Except for one thing, Dave was back. And everyone knew that trouble and women must be close behind. The most dramatic portrayal in Frank Sinatra's fabulous career. His best friend, Dean Martin. A guy who wouldn't take his hat off to anybody. He always wears his hat in the presence of ladies. All the time. 
He even sleeps in his hat. I'll bet. I learned a little while back that uh, certain conditions bring a gambler luck, you know? Mm -hmm. And, oh, thank you. And this here hat's one of them. You know, every time I take this hat off, something bad happens to me. All right, take away the door. Pick it up and put it on his head. Men fought him, but couldn't whip him. Women loved him, but couldn't hold him. This is Ginny, who wanted his love regardless of consequences. A standout performance by Shirley MacLaine. You'll miss the bestest pal you ever had. Hey, buddy, get that game away from the band. I don't want any trouble. Are you going to remove her or are we? What do you mean, are we going to? Dave, if there's going to be an argument about Ginny singing, I'm with him. Yeah, I'm with him. Martha Heyer is Gwen, afraid to love him and too attracted by him not to. Oh, by the way, uh, when's the wedding? What wedding? What wedding? Dave, just between you and me, that little old school teacher of yours, you know, she ain't too good an influence. You know, ever since you give up drinking, you've been impossible, boy. Oh, we'll have no more of that. I'm not one of your barroom tarts. You're right, teacher. You're 100% right. I've been a bad boy. I've been naughty. Matter of fact, I don't even belong in your class. Yes, everyone knew that Dave was back. The smug folks of the country club set. And the others on the wrong side of the tracks. Some Came Running reveals with startling force the innermost secrets of a town and its people boldly played by a cast as big as its story.